VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, November the 2nd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. You know the deal. David has produced the program, so when you pick up the phone and give us a call in the queue on the air, you'll be speaking with David Williams. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So in and around town, windy, rainy, and as you heard from Brian Medor in the weather forecast, plenty of snowy conditions in other parts of the province, and it's that time of year where... You know, we all remember what it's like to drive in the winter conditions, but sometimes it takes our brain a couple of trips through the snow to remember exactly what we should be doing for following distance and speed and all the rest of it and the distance it takes to stop your car. So get your winter driving brain on the go. Right, and you also heard from Mr. Medor, bit of an anticlimactic World Series. Of course, not great for the ratings when a couple of wildcard teams make, but Texas wins in five games, won 5 nothing last night. World Series champions for the very first time, obviously exciting for Rangers and Rangers fans. Corey Seager, superstar, MVP for the second time. He also won it back in 2020 as a member of the Los Angeles Dodgers. And a couple of sports notes to associate with some of these stories. Talk about MVP voting, but this time in the regular season. 1960, New York Yankees outfielder Roger Maris beat teammate Mickey Mantle for the American League MVP award. It was 225 to 222 in the voting. It's the second closest vote ever. And then we go out to check in on uh, Brad Guju and Team Guju at the Pan-Continental Curling Championships. Beat Australia last night to improve to 5-1. Looks like they're going to qualify for the Worlds. Got Guyana today. But Guju displeased with the organization and the conditions, whether it be sharing locker rooms, having to warm up outside, being taken to task for wearing thermals underneath their uniforms because it's cold in these community curling rinks. So they had to take it off. It was different colors and whatnot. So he's angry. He's calling it a joke. Not the first time Mr. Guju has spoken out in these types of terms about conditions and organization and ice and the rest of it. But, phew, five and one, that's the good news on that front. And I heard Ben Murphy talk about the fact that the Western Hockey League, that's a major junior league, of course, out in Manitoba, uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Alberta, B.C., part of the Northeastern United States, they're going to mandate neck guards as of Friday. Good all as a result of the tragic death of Adam Johnson, slashed in the neck by a skate blade while playing in England. It's already mandatory in the Ontario Hockey League, in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. And then you wonder, will the pros pay any attention to this in the NHL? Probably not. Now, the NHL, unlike the Major Junior Leagues, they have to get their guidance from the Players Association. So unless the NHLPA says, yes, let's investigate, or yes, let's implement, it just will not happen. And a couple of little hockey notes. 1969, 41-year-old Detroit Red Wing Gordie Howe picked up his 19th and final NHL hat-trick. The Red Wings beat the Penguins at night 4-3. Howe, the oldest player to ever score an NHL hat-trick. And this one's always fascinating. 1978, Wayne Gretzky sold to the Edmonton Oilers after just eight games playing with the Indianapolis Racers and the WHA. Had six points in those eight games. Scored 104 points in 72 games between both teams combined. He won the WHA Rookie of the Year. Played eight games. Pretty cool. Okay. Price of fuels down across the board. Obviously a welcome uh, piece of news for those of us filling up our rigs or filling up our oil tanks. Gas down almost 3 cents. Diesel decreased 3.5 cents. Furnace oil down 2.14 cents. Stove oil down 4.3. That was the largest drop in any fuel. And propane, which always seems pretty steady, down less than a cent, but down all the same. Yesterday on the program, had a, another great conversation with 
oil and gas consulting veteran of some 40-plus years, Rob Strong. We were discussing a variety of things in the industry. And, of course, the yesterday was the deadline for submission for bids at the CNLOPB for their land sales. So there was 47 parcels covering some 12 million hectares of land, and the CNLOPB received exactly zero bids. Zero bids. It's not that long ago there was record setting for individual parcels, record setting for annual land sales period. Eight new players came into the industry of Newfoundland and Labrador, and no bids yesterday. You think back to Hibernia, right? They first discovered oil at the Hibernia site in 1979. They began the development in 1986, construction started in 1991, and of course they've exceeded well past a billion barrels of oil. Add in Terra Nova, sluggish to get back out there. West White Rose Extension work is going well. Hebron is pumping oil. We don't know about Equinor and Beta Nord quite at this moment. But you wonder about what the future looks like. You know, since Hibernia, which did change the economic fortunes of the province, we know more and more now about fossil fuels, and we know more and more about the federal government and the provincial government talking about emission control and carbon capture and all the rest of it. But even if Equinor does indeed proceed with Beta Nord, what do you think the likelihood is that might be the last producing oil field in the province, if and when they actually pull the trigger on it? So no bids at the Sinaloa PB, which is an interesting one. And there is nothing that can replace oil, insofar as the provincial coffers are concerned. The thought about diversification, and yes, we'll see a spike in mining very likely. I heard Andrew Parsons on, Minister Parsons, talk about critical minerals and the critical mineral strategy. 27 of the world's 31 required critical minerals are right here in this province, so we'll see a move there. And then we'll get into the wind business now in a second. We've had a couple of good chats with uh, Dr. Leslie James from Memorial University, a process engineer, about carbon storage and depleted oil fields here. So the research has begun. I read a story this morning while they're moving towards a similar process in off the coast of British Columbia, capturing uh, carbon dioxide with wind turbines and then injecting it right into the basalt rock formations in the seabed. So a little bit different, but apparently after, say, upwards of 25 years, that carbon will actually turn into a rock, so they're pe or turn into rock. So they're currently evaluating that, which I find to be fascinating. And speaking of turbines, we're trying to get a status update as to where the negotiations stand regarding offshore wind, offshore and airshore. So, you know, there's got to be a regulatory regime, and then it'll be up to the provinces to talk about royalties and how they proceed. But that will indeed be part of our future sometime coming, because the province has told us quite clearly, as has Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, proponents of offshore wind are coming hand over fist with plans, but without a regulatory regime, can't happen. Now let's move off to wind onshore. Not really surprising, a fairly normal course of practice. We were anticipating on Tuesday some sort of announcement from the province and Minister Bernie Davis about World Energy GH2. Folks were rightfully overwhelmed with a 4,000-page technically heavy document and the 50 days to offer uh, feedback. Now the province has gone back to World Energy GH2 and their chairman, John Risley, saying it's not untoward or it's not illegitimate questions being posed. Thank you, sir. So they've got a bunch of questions that they're looking for more information and amendments to the EIS, the Environmental Impact Statement, submitted back in August. So pretty basic stuff. Talking about water use and monitoring, baseline data and information, potential and cumulative effects of the project, mitigation plans, contingency plans, emergency response plans. So there's ways we can dig into the details of those particular headlines. So back to the drawing board, so to speak. I don't know how this is going to be received in the minds or the ears, the hearts of those who were dead set against the project, or maybe better said, 
still had some looming questions about what exactly was going on here. We've never experienced this in this province. The entire industry of hydrogen is absolutely fairly new. It looks like the thirst for the product is real. So now when World Energy GH2 goes back to try to fill in some of those blanks or answer some of those questions, when they submit that back to government, then opens another 50-day window. So if you're one of the folks either all in or still have questions or vehemently opposed, your thoughts on this pause in the what might be the eventual approval of the project. So after the, pro the answers are submitted once again and the 50-day window for public feedback, then there's going to have to be a decision made 70 days after the, the submission. So sometime into the new year, very likely, but a pause for World Energy GH2. Your thoughts welcomed here this morning. And of course, everything comes with some sort of ecological or environmental cause. Onshore wind, offshore wind, of course, all obviously still uh, will have some impact on marine life and the like. So there's a lot to it if you want to bring it forward. Let's go. Okay. So new legislation that has passed second reading in the House of Assembly, almost there to final royal assent, is new, new legislation governing municipalities called the Towns and Local Service Districts Act. We know that either the government just gave up on regionalization, and there was lots of pushback, mostly coming from local service districts, and that's also understandable given the fact that when the working groups were established at MNL, they weren't involved. So when you're late to the game and you think it's going to be possibly more money out of pocket for maybe no additional services, regionalization just fell off the map, right? The government just walked away from it. Much to the chagrin of many of the proponents of people who did a lot of the legwork to put forward the potential plan for some, I think it was, what, 26 counties or regions? So this act will have opportunity for municipalities to have more power. It doesn't subscribe or prescribe uh, regionalization and a regional governance model, but it does have some things which I think can indeed be interesting. Opposition members are concerned. They say that there might be good things in this package, but when you're given a pretty thick document of 146 pages back in front of those pages and a limited time, to read it, digest it, discuss it, and prepare for any type of debate in the House of Assembly. So that's always going to be something that, rightfully, opposition parties wonder about their ability to do their level best for themselves and their constituents by having a thorough understanding of the legislation. So one thing, it's going to have the, offer the ability to eliminate a poll tax. It's about time. Last province in the country to have these poll taxes available. You know, Minister Haggy says that they're regressive. I would suggest that property taxes are also a regressive form of taxation. So that's going to go away. There's going to be opportunities for shared services, collaboration, and regardless of what people think about it, regionalization or collaboration or cooperation, it's going to be necessary. Just plain and simple, based on numbers alone. So the poll tax going away, probably a very good idea. They'll decide individual municipalities and how to proceed with taxation, whether it be on businesses and or individuals and their homes. Maybe they'll do what many, many communities do with, you know, an assessment and a mill rate and an eventual property tax structure. Importantly, in the world, having more power in the hands of municipalities, there used to be a bunch of ministerial approvals required for all of the different moving parts and proposals. So 11 of these ministerial approvals have been removed for a current act. So less red tape, which is always good. More bureaucracy is always confusing and cumbersome and time-consuming. So that's going away and more freedom for the municipalities. Maybe if Amy Cody from MNL would like to chime in, or even municipal leaders who are maybe in some of these communities with the poll tax. I know it's early on to say exactly what you're going to do with this new freedom and the reduction of red tape, 
but it is does seem like a an overdue piece of legislation to modernize the way that communities operate, municipal governance operate, and their freedom and the reduction of the so-called red tape. Fair ball. All right. You know, health care spending. I don't really know what to make of these stories. We spend a ton of money on health care, and now we're all in this province against province bidding war for professionals. But the Canadian Institute for Health Information says health care spending is starting to moderate. There was a massive big uptick during the throes of the pandemic. Healthcare spending, $344 billion. $344 billion by the end of 2023. Increase of $9 billion from the year previously. So, healthcare spending, yes, is moderating. Probably a very good idea. 2023 spending growth rates about 4%, but it was 9% during the heights of the pandemic. But we've got to figure out a way to not only control healthcare spending, but to get positive healthcare outcomes as the guiding principle, as opposed to. How many doctors, how many nurses, how many beds, all the rest. Obviously important. Access to a healthcare professional, paramount. But healthcare outcomes are not lining up with the money that's being spent. On that front, the Newfoundland Labrador Medical Association, they have concerns. Okay. Virtual care is something that many people got used to during the pandemic. And for certain illnesses and ailments, it can be very helpful. You know, the ability to get that type of help in the comfort of your own home as opposed to driving to and sitting in a waiting room. And, you know, people do like to be able to reach out and shake the hand of the doctor in the white coat and see the uh, degree on the wall and all the rest of it. But virtual care is going to be a bigger, bigger part. Now, with the NLMA, they're talking about the expansion of private offerings, which I do think is a worthwhile consideration. It's just how much private offerings bleed into the system. There's long been private operations inside of healthcare for longer, for a long, long time. But the question about how that expansion will look and what it'll mean for primary care teams, primary care doctors, and yes, a couple of the questions they have, for instance, regarding pay. We understand the difference of pay between travel nurses and those working in the public system. We talk about things like the cost that is afforded to uh, 811 and the private company offering it. And yes, they can make more money on a call that ends up in a referral to a doctor and will pay the doctor less than we pay 811. They're also talking about Who's going to be working in this virtual care offering inside a private company? There is a clause in the contract that says that this private company cannot poach doctors from the public system, but it doesn't mean that a public system doctor can't say, go to the company and say, I'd like to work for you. So we need to know what the compensation is. We don't understand exactly what the value of the contract is, but some of these questions, fair enough, because we can't create another problem. We can't design another whip for our own tail. So some of those questions are understandable. That said, we really do have a problem with territorial comments and procedures and policies coming from the various sectors of healthcare. Look, doctors get mad at me all the time when I say these kinds of things, but so be it. What we need as citizens is to be able to see the healthcare professional with the training and accreditation that's up to the standards based on what I need today whatever illness or ailment I'm suffering from or questions that I have. So inside the world of scope of practice, it's time to fling open those doors. Look, I get it. If an LPN or a nurse practitioner or a doctor or a pharmacist or whoever would like to maximize their potential earnings, of course, it's human nature. It's how we all operate, by and large. But the needs of the healthcare system and the needs of the general public 
maybe, just maybe, we can pop that up on the hierarchy just a little bit more. Now, of course, inside the Hippocratic Oath, and do no harm, and healthcare professionals, the vast, overwhelming majority, simply want to help. That's why they entered the profession. That's why they went through the arduous training and the length of time and the cost associated with it. But if you're trained to do something, let's let them do it. Let's get the legislation to uh, reflect the fact that if you've got that accreditation, you should be able to do whatever you're trained for. Anyway, I'll get blistered for that, but that's it. Bye. All right, how are we doing on the telephone, Dave? I had a couple of quickies I wanted to get through here. Uh, da -da 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 -da. I see a story regarding, you know, wastewater testing and the big uptick in the numbers of Canadians using multiple substances, including cocaine. The overdose numbers are absolutely overwhelming. When we talk about a crisis, that goes by the wayside. We have a nasty tendency to turn our back on things like addictions and folks who are addicted. But the numbers are unbelievable. And some of that comes through wastewater testing. Then they talk about some of the cities that are, are the highest when examining the use of cocaine. And then we talk about wastewater testing and the prevalence or the presence of COVID. Nobody wants to hear about it anymore, but it doesn't mean it's gone away. I'm as sick of it as all of you are. But it's out there, and it looks like it's out there in pretty significant numbers. I know a slew of people who are COVID positive today. Then we talk to people like Tara Moriarty, talking about what the concept is of long COVID. Look, when we talk about COVID, it doesn't mean that we have to extend that conversation into lockdowns and mandates. We're actually just talking about health and public health. So the world of long COVID is apparently very real as well, just as people who are suffering from it. There's an estimated, well, there's tens of thousands of people apparently in the province who have exactly that, symptoms that have lasted more than three months. If we don't create a policy or a program or a clinic to deal with it, people feel abandoned. So as much as I'm entirely up to my neck and sick of COVID, the virus is not sick of us. And yes, it will mutate, and yes, there will be different concerns, and people will or will not go ahead and get a booster shot, and that'll, I'll leave that up to you and your doctor, but those numbers are out there. All right, last one. Federal Immigration Minister made an announcement yesterday, that's Mark Miller. Talk about new targets for immigration. Look, I'm unabashedly pro-immigration for a variety of reasons, but there's no shame for the federal liberals to admit that their strategy, their targets, have resulted in too much, too quick. <laughs> All you have to do is just look at two notables, healthcare and housing. It's pretty simple stuff here. So they say they're going to level off the immigration numbers in 2026. But they're going to proceed with their targets for 2024 and 25, which is 485,000 in 2024, 500,000 in 2025. Again, to pump the brakes to ensure we're on the right track, not only for people who are currently living in the country, but also, yes, for the newcomers. You know, if you don't have some of the basics, access to health care, and a place to call your own to lay your head, then we're probably just moving a little too quickly here. So, but the federal government has just kind of said, eh, we'll pump the brakes in 2026 as opposed to next year, which is absolutely available. Anyway, that's a, and I hate to, you know, sometimes it's hard to talk about immigration because it's not pointing the finger of blame and, you know, newcomers are causing all these problems because that's not necessarily the case. But we have to be prepared for every obvious reason that you can consider. And if you want to talk about that, we can do it. One thing that we haven't talked about in quite a long time, and it requires some federal government intervention, is interprovincial trade barriers. So there's no tariff on goods from province to province. 
but there are subtle types of fees associated with it that makes it an absolute trade barrier. And there's all kinds of restrictions with how much you can bring from one province to another and a variety of substances or goods or services or products. So when the examination is done, it's equivalent to about an almost 7% tariff based on these little subtle fees and restrictions and charges. So the national GDP, this is a uh, findings that were done in 2021, national GDP could rise by $80 billion or 3.8% if we did more to eliminate these interprovincial trade barriers. It's been a long time since we talked about it, but it comes with a significant cost to Canadians. It reflects about doubling the current GST, and yeah, 3.8% in GDP growth, rising by $80 billion. You don't hear federal politicians talk about it because the provinces have established these, we'll call them barriers, to protect their own operations, manufacturing, and what have you, where they are, and the provinces that they govern. But it comes at a cost to Canadians. And inside the world of confederation, maybe a little bit more cooperation. You know, and even things like the East-West Power Grid. So I'll just throw that out there, see if that whets your whistle. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jeffrey, you're on the air. Uh, hey there. How are you doing? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Um, uh, I was wanting to talk about, um, like, uh, I heard a caller on Friday, last Friday, I believe it was, talking about... Um, like the the availability and the lack thereof maybe of of like mental health supports and specifically i think the six beds that are like going to be soon available here in goose bay where i am um and like it got me thinking um i i know like how that that i mean like the need is so great right now so it's it, it makes it like glaringly obvious that six beds aren't maybe enough but but that i mean just a few years ago um there were none and 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 i'm not i'm not like like singing the praises of the government or anything but 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 at least it's something like you know um and it's being to some degree at least acknowledged and and beginning to be addressed understood so without question the six bed unit which was proposed a long time ago and still doesn't have the staff required to open it up and the call that we had was from keith fitzpatrick and he's got lived experience in the community and he figures that he could walk out his front door and by the time he got to the corner that he'd be able to fill all those six beds with people that are already in need so you're you're 100 right but what does access to mental health care look like what like what does it mean to you when you think about it or talk about it um well like given my own experience with it like uh, i myself have gone through like the earth like the the system so to speak and and it took a number of years of starting about maybe in 2016 so like six seven years um and after the initial intake and in, i think it was december 2016 for myself um, they were. I was classified as high priority, so they said like I'd be seen within 30 days. So I, <laughs> so I finally got my first appointment with a counselor in April, um, in 2017. And maybe I was naive or just unaware. I think maybe both. Um, that that I thought like, okay, I'm seeing you now, so fix me. Um, 
not realizing that how much is actually done by the by the individual and and counseling i think as as it stands kind of has a basic um structures um that like and then on an individual basis the way i understand it is that um the counselor um assesses your needs whether it be like distress tolerance or anger management or like if you're dealing with addictions or marital problems whatever it may be and and then they can tailor like your course of treatment accordingly um but i've found from from even then to now i've I've noticed there are more counselors here in in at the health center here and and they have a variety of talents and and um what do you call it like um uh specialties i guess okay and and they they to me at least seem very capable and and but like i say if if like per, per, i can only speak for myself with any authority but um like you, you won't get anything out of it if you don't put anything into it Fair enough. Well said. You know, and sometimes when we talk about these things, we'll talk about, you know, how much money needs to be invested. And it's part of it. You, we can't avoid talking about money inside the world of healthcare. The province had committed to spend 9% of its healthcare budget directly on mental health required services. We're not there. Where exactly we are, not sure, but we're not at nine. So there's different needs and different severity in the need or the lack of services in different parts of the province. And Labrador has long been the case where they just, this part of the province, that part of the province, just simply doesn't have the numbers required for the needs on the ground. Um, I agree. And I'd like to say, um, I mean, I've, I've, most of my, like I'm in my 50s now, and um, most of my, since I've been of voting age, I've, I've more often than not voted liberal, but I'm I'm starting to not like this. <laughs> the 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 moves that this government or the lack of moves that they're like everything they're doing like um, they seem to be content in leaving people to their own devices. From whether it be like when the election was called and um, the premier and the then health minister um, were like seem to be deflecting questions saying oh contact the R- ask your rha or oh i don't have that information right now and and or with like even um couples that were wanting to have children they were referring them to like the i think it's called the athena center or something and with daycare sending they send your kids to the y um so like what i mean by that is, is like the Communities on the coast in Nunatsiavut have um, the Nunatsiavut government has a Department of Health and Social Development, and they offer now like peer council support in each community, um, at least as far as I know. And and also they they now have like a team lead who is um, uh, fully trained in uh, trauma informed mental health and addictions counseling, and they are beginning to expand that. Um, but but saying all that is, is like I feel it's an indictment on the government that um, they can say okay yeah we'll throw some money at it and just <laughs> make it go away 
and, and I don't think that's how it works. I don't think it's how it works either. I mean, just talking about the amount of money spent, if we spend almost $4 billion on health care for a population that apparently is approaching about 540000 that math doesn't really add up when we talk about the prevalence of chronic illness, the uh, health care outcomes, wait times, and everything else. So it's not simply a matter of money. You're 100% right, in my opinion, Jeffrey. And I don't know, and this is not about liberals or conservatives or NDP or anything else for me, is... Does healthcare change with simply changing a political party? Because we find ourselves, and I think there's got to be some uh, national conversation here and some standards put into place. Every government, regardless if you're NDP or uh, liberal or conservative, if we're simply going to be just trying to outspend each other on healthcare professionals, that's not going to change the system either. You know, it's, it's simply not. I thought the work done by the Health Accord Group and all their subcommittees really have a roadmap for how the system can be improved. But simply spending doesn't seem to be working because if it did, we'd be home free. <laughs> yeah, we'd all be laughing, I guess. Yeah, I think so. Um, but, and, I mean, healthcare, it's, it's, I don't know, those are like among the buzzwords now when, when elections are happening, like, and like the latest thing is like the, with the federal government, like they made kind of a sweetheart deal with the NDP and like with that, like promising like Pharmacare and like dental care and things like that. But I mean, healthcare shouldn't be like a bargaining chip. Um, I mean, it's an essential, like it's a necessity. It's an, an essential, it, it shouldn't be a service. <laughs> like. Healthcare is is not and should not be political. You know, of course, it's hard to take politics out of anything that government touches because it's baked in. But it is 100% not a political issue. It shouldn't be, although some politicians are wanting it to be exactly that. And it's to our collective detriment. I mean, I heard the numbers, or I read the numbers out earlier this morning. We're going to spend about $344 billion in Canada on healthcare this year. I mean, that's an amazing number. And you mentioned dental care, which I think can be very beneficial to folks who don't have access to it. You know, your dental care, your dental health is a big part of your overall health. And it's interesting that you mentioned pharmacare. The NDP were pretty clear coming out of their three-day caucus, or pardon me, it wasn't a caucus, it was a, uh, a conference that they had in Hamilton not long ago, and they have said very dis- uh, succinctly that unless the federal government moves on with universal pharmacare, we might see an end to their confidence supply r- agreement, which is the only reason why the liberals are still in power. So we'll see where that one goes. Liberals have talked about it for a long time, but they've never moved on it. And, you know, there's there's no other country with universal health care like we have in the modern developed first world that doesn't also have pharmacare. So we'll see where that one goes. I'll give you the final thoughts, Jeffrey, before we say goodbye. Um, yeah, it's like a, like, I mean, health, I mean, when you, when you use the word health, health care, it, it has gotten so broad and it involves so many things and they're fluid, you know, um, and, and I don't think any government, regardless of <laughs> liberal NDP or PC, um, can, can make promises that you know, on something that's forever changing. Fair enough. Uh, Jeffrey, I really appreciate the time, sir. Thanks for calling this morning. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, a fair ball. You know, some of the takeaways there is... There's always going to be some differences. On the federal scene, there's a bit more of a difference or policy ideas between the various mainstream parties. 
provincially here in this province? Not so much. I really don't think so. And does changing parties deal with healthcare in, in, in any different fashion? Now, there might be all kinds of ideas that would be attractive to you as a supporter of one party or another, and that's the way the world works. But in the world of healthcare, does a whole lot change? And if so, how? I mean, because we're all about trying to find ideas and solutions, because as you've heard me say before, and I'll stick with it, I don't care how, who has the good idea. I just like good ideas. So if Jim Din brings one forward or Tony Wakem brings one forward or Andrew Fury brings one forward or any of their members of their party, let's move on it. Let's work on it. Inside the world of healthcare, we really got to drop the lapel pin collar and ensure that every decent idea, proposed solution is carefully considered. And if it's going to work, it looks like it's going to work and it brings some hope to one part of the province or another, let's just do it. You know, the parties will always do a little bit of grandstanding. Well, that was my idea. Fine, that was your idea, good for you. But let's just, you know, healthcare is the one area where we simply can't afford to have political standoffs. Just can't. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your requests to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Just pick up on the politics and healthcare. Look, you can't take politics out of everything in full because it's simply not how anything works, unfortunately. And then there was the mention of the health accord. You know, the 10-year roadmap. Like many other documents that the government has produced, some through terrific, uh, very low-cost work like the health accord was and all the healthcare professionals and experts in the field that gave their own free time to it, you know, even in that document, you wonder how closely it will be adhered to. Because it was touted as absolutely the pathway forward, but even just a couple of fundamental things that were part of the health accord have already been ignored by the government based on political pressure. And again, people want what they want, completely understood. Talk about obstetrics. The health accord said that the one obstetrics unit in Central would be in Grand Falls, Windsor. And there is one there. But, of course, based on demand and concerned parents and young families in Gander, they were pleading for obstetrics to be put back into their hospital in Gander, and now, lo and behold, it will be. So that's not to say that to begrudge anybody in Gander obstetrics. Why would I? Because there's some serious complications that can happen to have to travel from Gander to Grand Falls, Windsor for prenatal care and or your delivery. But there's the example of... If it's the be-all and end-all, and it's the roadmap and the pathway inside of healthcare, will political pressure usurp the work that was done and the recommendations that were put forward? Very similar to all kinds of other documents, you know, just say the Green Report, for instance, or the Rothschild Report, which we can't get a look at, apparently, top secret. But inside that work, and remember, when the Green Report, also known as the Premier's Economic Recovery Team, they put forward an enormous amount of information and recommendations. Are we following through on any or all or some or none? You know, I've, there has been some work done on some of them, but some of the massive questions that were being asked, for instance, divesting the equity position the province has in the offshore. You know, has there been any move on that front? I think we're anticipating a conversation with uh, Andrew Parsons, Minister Parsons, tomorrow. Maybe I'll put that to him. Then there's things like divesting uh, in the worlds of the NLC and motor vehicle and bull arm and Marble Mountain and all that. Nobody seems to want to take on operations outside the group that already runs uh, Marble Mountain. They're doing quality work to move it to more of a year-round offering. But if all this body of work has been completed, then where are we? 
what's the status update on some of the biggest questions and recommendations that were made, whether it be in the health report and or the Green report or the Rothschild report or the McKinsey report and the other documents that the government has leaned on and touted as being critically important and the guiding principle that will be adhered to. But where are we? Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Eugene. You're on the air. How you doing? I'm doing okay. How you doing? Uh, I was just wondering if I could get something out of your airways. Let me explain myself. Okay. We're a non-profit uh, operation in Avondale. We have the Railway Museum. Uh-huh. And anyway, there, uh, last week we had a Halloween run. We had a bunch of figurines up in on the railway bed for the kids to look at. So anyway, they all got stolen. Like that one we used to do, that we used to give the kids a, sh- a sheet of paper. And anyway, when they were going in on the railway bed, uh, if they could find all those things that we had up in the trees, like the Paw Patrol, Anna, Elsa, Yogi Bear, and Boo Boo, all them, when they come back to the station, they would get a prize. I mean, you could, you would see, the, if you only could see the expression on those little kids' faces when they come back. I mean, it wasn't a big prize, a uh, Mr. Freezy or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but for some uh, inconsiderate person to take all those figurines off the trees, you know, uh, it's, it's not right. And I was just wondering if it could be put out over the airways, just maybe somebody might see them. You've done just exactly that, Eugene, and fair enough. It, people are just so bloody inconsiderate, right? Yeah. You know, for starters, it's a theft, it's a crime, but it's the consideration that also gets is absent here. People know full well why they were put out and who they were intended to cheer up or to get a smile from, and they go ahead and steal it. It reminds me of some of the videos I've seen from Halloween, even right here in this province, where someone who might be unwell or has a mobility issue or just doesn't want to be up and down answering the door for the trick-or-treaters, and they'll put out the candy on the stoop and with the sign say please take one and leave yeah. some for others and then some trick-or-treaters will come up and take big hands full and toss them in their bag and run off you know that it's just that distinct lack of consideration that is a little bit too common and it's not just one age group like who knows who stole those figurines if anyone sees them or you know who did it just yeah. tell them to return it to the railway museum right well uh, i mean even though, like it costs us a lot of money to put them there i bet and then only that like i mean like, they had to take a lot of time to take them down. We had them really secured to the trees and stuff. So they didn't do it in five minutes. It took a while for them to take them all down. And to be, to be so inconsiderate, I mean, we're a non-profit opera, you know, and volunteers. Like, we all volunteer our time to do this. But to see the expression on the little kids' faces when they come back to the station and go in with their sheet and says, oh, yeah, you found everything. I mean, I missed a freeze or a little ball or something. And they're so proud of it. Of course they are. You know? About how many of these figurines were up and eventually stolen? Uh, I'd say about 30. Okay, jeez. Like, it was all the Paw Patrol. Uh, Anna, Elsa, uh, uh, Yogi Bear and Boo Boo, Fred Flintstone and Barney, uh, the Roadrunner, a bunch of rabbits and, and owls and, you know. So they're going to end up on someone's 
uh, shelf or on their mantle or on their Christmas tree. And look, if you're the one of the people who was robbing these figurines, do the right thing. Drop them off somewhere at the Railway Museum, whether it be under the cover of darkness, if you don't want to get in trouble, but just give them back yeah. for every reason, obviously. Uh, so some of those figurines were five feet tall. Oh, is that right? Like they would, like they, they would, uh, you could, when the kids were going in, they could say, oh, there's Rocky, oh, there's, uh, you know, like you, like they weren't small figurines. Okay. If you could uh, ever get a chance to go on our website and you will see the figurines that we got put up that were stolen. I'll have a look, and we'll be happy to share it with our social media, Eugene. So hopefully that results in some of the figurines or all of the figurines being returned. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yes, it would be great. So, uh, listen, thanks for your time. My pleasure, sir. Thanks for the call. Okay, bye, Eugene. If you rob the figure, bloody figurines, will you just give them back? <laughs> oh, man. Let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, when we come back, Keith is in the queue to respond to our first caller this morning, Jeffrey, calling from a lab, Labrador, talk about access to mental health services, then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Where do you want me to go, Dave? Three? Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Keith. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Best kind. Thanks for asking. How you doing? Oh, not too bad. I had to call in after I heard the early discussion. Sure. Go right ahead. Well, what, uh, what you make of it? Uh, it's a good discussion. We need to talk about it. We need to talk about the fact that it is politicized and it shouldn't be. Doesn't uh, honestly in this province, every political party has pr- that's been in power has pretty much failed healthcare in general for not funding it right or not focusing on the right things or. Saying they're going to fund it, they're not doing it. It doesn't matter if it's PC or liberal. It's always kind of been the same, same old, same old. And unless, you know, the attitudes change, it's great to say what you're going to do. But if you don't actually do it, that 9% definitely isn't there for mental health. That's that's for sure. I know uh, Christy has definitely been tracking that and has been very vocal about that herself. But it's, 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 it's where we're putting the money is the problem. You know, we're spending all this money after the fact instead of trying to head off the problem. Well, I mean, you know, I, I think that's the case inside of healthcare, period. It's very much a reactive model, isn't it? You know, we can talk about preventative medicine and, you know, some of that's our own personal responsibility, of course, with our own health. But that's what we do. The entire system is designed that way, or the vast majority of the system is designed that way. When you get sick, then you go to get some health care, as opposed to, you know, more of attention to it. And look, I'm not preaching because I should be doing way better than I do for my own personal health. But I try to chip away at it, and I try to be as active as I can. But, you know, when you say that, and you talk about nipping in the bud, what does that mean? Because we all have different thoughts. We use these different phrases, maybe with different sorts of thoughts behind them. What do you mean? For mental health care especially, we have so many people that need the help and can't get it properly. And the government threw out things like doorways and bridge the gap and all these ideas. But they have one program that is a really good program that they're really not advertising, for lack of a better word, the, the FAP teams, Flexible Assertive Community Treatment Teams. I'm in this program myself. Did I? I was years before I was entered into it when I've suffered with mental health issues for decades. Like the fact team came to Lab West in June of 2021. I was never offered it until March of 2022. And I, I, I've said it myself to many people. Anyone dealing with chronic mental health conditions like addictions or uh, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, all this should be immediately 
in this program because it ties in counselors, psychiatrists, family doctors if you have one, because you know that's easier said than done, social workers, uh, occupational therapists, and they all work together with you. And it's an assertive team. You can't just duck out on them because I don't know about anybody else, but I had a lot of problems actually getting to my appointments and I cancel because I, really, as the other caller said, you need to take an active role in this yourself. You're not going to get help if you're not willing to help yourself, but this fact team actually pushes you to get the help a little bit. If I don't show up to my appointment, they're coming to my home because I've agreed to it. But we, it's never – like nobody knows it exists. I've told many people about it, and they go, what? What's that? How do you get on it? How do you get it? How do you, how do you enter it? And it's, it's just not talked about. It's probably one of the better mental health programs for people with serious or chronic mental health conditions, and it's not used – in fact, the numbers, they're not even enrolling people in it like they were. Uh, I asked for that from the government from Access to Information, and from April 2022 to March 2023, when I enrolled, there was 51 people in Lamp West on it. April 2023 to September this year, 15. That includes me. So why are we not, like, we keep talking about dumping money in the system. It's fine to dump money but if it's not put in the right place, you're not going to fix anything. You can throw a billion dollars in the system, and if it's going to administration or all the other things and not actually going into programs that work, it just makes zero sense. And the FACT program that they created is a beautifully done program when they actually enroll patients into it. Well, it sounds like a collaborative care clinic or a, a primary care team, but for mental health, uh, I don't know why enrollment would be down. I mean, things that work, including a primary care team or a collaborative care clinic, it makes all the sense in the world to me. And I think they are inevitably going to be better for the regions that get one of the 35 and hopefully the expansion of the FACT program. The trick will always be, Keith, and I think you know this too, is until we can staff them up, as opposed to just move healthcare professionals around and not add to the pile, then we're just kind of, some of that is more optics than it is pragmatism and actually moving forward. So I'm going to dig in a little further on the fact team. Do you happen to know how widespread it might be? You know, is it utilized in different parts of the province? Is it something unique to Labrador? I've heard about it, but I haven't talked about it in a long time, so I'm unsure the status of it. There are fact teams in St. John's, okay. Central Health has it, Western Health has it, and Labrador Zone has it too. In Goose Bay here, St. Anthony, it's, they they'd expanded it all over the place to try to uh, improve mental health, which was a great idea. The problem is it's not being utilized. But you're not told about it. I didn't know it existed until I had an issue with physical health, and I mentioned, you know, I'd like to see someone for my mental health too. And within five minutes talking to the counselor, she had the head person from FAC come up and visit me because I had been admitted, and I was in the program immediately. But it's not featured anywhere. There's no advertising for it. I've always said everyone that comes out of like a detox program or rehab should be put on it automatically. You've got an occupational therapist that's going to help you try to rebuild your life. You've got counselors that are dedicated to you, a psychiatrist. Like my counselor could attend my psychiatrist appointment. 
I just brought it up uh, while you were describing it. And so it was launched in July of 2020. And FACT stands for Flexible Assertive Community Treatment. There are seven multidisciplinary teams with peer support right across the province. So Deer Lake, St. Anthony, Grand Falls, Windsor, Gander, St. John's, Cornerbrook, Happy Valley, Goose Bay. So I'll dig into this a little bit more. Apparently there's 200 staff that work on these teams. They all have specialized training for FACT, again, which is Flexible Assertive Community Treatment. I'm going to dig into this a little bit more and put it on my list for conversation conversations with uh, the minister because that's coming up in the near future i think yeah because it's it's a beautiful program uh, like uh, it's it's helped me tenfold since i got put in that program because it's the assertive part was the big thing with me yep. with a lot of people it's you know sometimes you don't want to go to your appointment you don't want to do this if you fall by the wayside when you do that because if you don't take an active role you're not getting help the assertive part you know they're going to call and check in on you they're going to show up at your door they're going to make sure that you don't fall by the wayside and they're involved in every bit of your mental health care, whether it's the psych, the family doctor, all of it. Like it's, it's one of the better mental health programs they've launched. And it just doesn't seem like it's getting used, at least not in Lab West. Some people might hear a sort of uh, outreach approach and think, you know, showing up unwanted. But that's I don't imagine that's the case here, is it, Keith? Because no. if you get enrolled, you're told exactly how it's going to work. You can stay with it or not. Oh, yeah. I was told that if I do this, we can't show up at your door if you decide to miss an appointment or two. And I'm like, okay, that's fine, because I needed that. Like, it, it was it was a great help for someone who always kind of pushed off his mental health. And it's there seven days a week, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. There's actually after-hour services available in an event of emergency. So I'm glad you put this back on my radar, because... This is exactly what, you know, I guess it's an extension of a collaborative care clinic because my family doctor's clinic is not assertive the way that this program is designed, and rightfully so. And if it comes with not only the obvious benefit for the individual, but reduces the possibility for emergencies, whether that be appearances at emergency rooms or otherwise. So I'm really pleased that you put this back out there this morning for my consideration and for those listening to the show. We'll absolutely follow up with the minister to see where we are. Has it been expanded beyond 200 staff? Is it fully uh, do we have enrollment at capacity because when people need this type of help and you've got to put some energy in it as you and Keith or you and Jeffrey have obviously said and if you don't want help you can't be helped necessarily so this is a good one uh, final thoughts good to you Keith before I take a break for the news uh, the other thing I just want to throw out is uh, I got to give a great shout out to uh, the Nanatsiva government and the other indigenous governments in Labrador because uh, they do a lot for mental health like they do a lot to help their peoples with their mental health and trauma. They even have an addiction center for detox and rehab for their members, right? Like they're doing it the right way. Maybe the provincial government should kind of look at their ideas and go with it. <laughs> We've got them doing such a great job trying to help their people. Let's collaborate and figure out how to do it for everybody. A good idea is a good idea, regardless of who came up with it, whether it be you know, the Nazi government or the NCC or the Liberals or the Dippers or the Conservatives. doesn't matter to me anymore. Exactly. Good ideas required. Keith, always good to have you on. Appreciate the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. You too, Patty. Have a great day. You too, pal. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. There we go. All right. Let's take a break for the news. Uh, Sean's picking up. I think I read a story this morning about someone who needed some particular cancer care went all the way to Montana to get it. So Sean wants to talk about people actually leaving the province to get additional care. And we know in the world of cancer care, we are indeed sending patients to Ontario. We haven't been hitting the threshold to begin uh, radiation therapy uh, or chemo, pardon me, the 28-day national standard. Sometimes we're not hitting that apparently. And we have dozens of people that are getting their care and treatment elsewhere. We'll talk about that with Sean and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. 
nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. For clarification and for accuracy purposes, the national standard, the threshold of 28 days to get your treatment is for radiation. So if we have a shortage of radiation therapists, and between November the 1st of 2022 and September the 27th of 2023, the Provincial Cancer Care Program made 222 referrals for patients to receive their services out of province. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Sean. You're on the air. Hi, Sean. Hey, Patty, how are you? Oh, I'm doing fine, thanks. How you doing? Fantastic. What do you think of the Habs? I think they're going to be a solid team, but I don't know how this year is going to play out, but lots of young talent. The defense looks good. I love the Matheson kid. Too bad about Kirby Doc, but I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. And the second line, of course, is really good, eh? They're living up to expectations. Well, there's certainly a lot of speed there, so, yeah, they've yeah. got a nice-looking young team, and one of these years they're going to be a force, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The, the reason I'm calling is that I picked up the paper this morning and I saw a couple travels to Montana for cancer care. Uh, this, sum it up, this uh, elderly gentleman uh, had been seeing his doctor uh, here in St. John's uh, or somewhere in Newfoundland uh, for uh, problems uh, with the bowels. So his doctor kept talking to him and said, you know, laxatives, stool softeners, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, drink lots of water, get out and walk a lot. One day, his son came in and noticed that his father didn't look good. All right, he looked really pale. Okay, mm-hmm. all the time through this progress, um, they were inquiring of the doctor to get a colonoscopy done. Okay, which would have solved the problem right there. Okay, uh, but that wasn't offered to him. Well, at least it would have identified the problem. Would it? <laughs> it could have. Like, Colonoscopy is gold standard. As a physician, I know that, right? Okay. Do you know how many people I've sent for colonoscopies? Listen, if somebody comes into my office uh, years ago when I was practicing, okay, if they had any suspicious symptoms, any red flags, as we call them, okay, I'd be on the phone to to a GI guy, and we'd have him in for a colonoscopy done uh, within two or three days. Okay? Don't fool around. Okay? Now, this guy, he went down to Montana, Next thing you know, they were doing some treatments. Next thing you know, uh, the, the tumor had regressed. Then he got it on his peritoneum, which is the inside of your, uh, like you cut down through the skin, fat, fascia, then you're going to get peritoneum. It's a very small membrane. Um, and a hard spot to get rid of it. But they started around Keytruda, okay? And Keytruda is one of those new drugs. And it's trunked. So he came back to Newfoundland hoping to get Keytruda coverage. So he called um, uh, John Hagee, who was Minister of Health. Never got a call back. Never called a call back. Then he called Pam uh, Parsons, his MHA for the area. Never got a call back. Never got a call back. Then he died. Later on, uh, his uh, basically his uh, the person who uh, at the Confederation Link said, yes, the emails that they had sent had been received by both uh, members of the government, okay? And these guys didn't even come out. And, and you know, or hey, especially a doctor, you, you think that he might come out and say, uh, you know, uh, let, let's get coverage. And one thing I got to say, Patty, is that, you know, this was hard on the family. I mean, I mean, guess who paid their way down to Billings, Montana? I mean, it was it was the people in it was the government of Montana. 
I mean, and fights up and down and all that stuff, right? Not, not, not loose of land, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, these things, you know, when you get a call from your constituent, okay, especially a very sick one, you should take the call right away. MHAs, I mean, listen, if I call my MHA, I got a call back right away. They just, you know, that's that's just a standard, right? You know, uh, and, uh, you know, this whole business, you know, it really rots me, right? And I feel bad for the gentleman's son, Dan, you know, because he's been through the ringer. And, and, and the guy's wife who passed away, I mean, uh, uh, the guy who passed away, his wife, I mean, I feel really bad for her and uh, that whole family. But that that is a symptom of our medical system, okay? It seems like the doctors, and I won't say all doctors, because some doctors are really keen, all right? But most doctors, they'd rather talk it out with the patient and get more billable hours, okay? Uh, but a lot, a, lot, a lot more doctors would, would refer right away. you got to refer right away for those treatments. Because if you don't, if you send someone in, for example, Patty, if I sent you in to get a scope though, or your wife or one of your kids because they're having rectal bleeding, okay? You know, you'll come back and say, Geez, huh? Or thanks, Doc. Uh, you know, uh, nothing was found. And I'll say, Great news. And you'll be happy as anything, too. But if something comes back bad, you're also going to say the same thing to me because you're, you've got a, something that you can attack locally and cure and eviscerate. Uh, when Andy Fury said the other day, uh, the Premier, that, hey, man, if you're looking at the old style of medicine, okay, where you have a solo practitioner, okay. You know, I did that for 23 years. Let me tell you, there's no better way to know your patients than to take care of them longitudinally over a long period of time, okay? And that's what makes somebody a great doctor. But having these collaborative clinics where you see somebody at one visit and see them 10 visits later, you don't you don't have that level of continuity and trust. Yeah, I'm not sure that's how it works in many of these clinics. I did indeed. I was on Patient Connect. I was on the roster. I waited a long time to get assigned a doctor. But when I did, I've only ever seen the doctor. When I go over, I haven't seen any other healthcare professional. And of course, if you don't necessarily need to see a doctor, then there's probably no need to see someone other than the LPN or the nurse practitioner or the social worker or whatever is the discipline that you actually need to see because not everything requires a white coat MD, right? I understand the point you're making. And it just, it gives me pause be, uh, gives me there pause are various tests that can be ordered by sure right and they uh, don't all require physician. a visit to a doctor uh, that, uh, okay last word Sean uh, that's nurse practitioner uh, knows about uh, the other thing is before I go Patty I'd like to congratulate Keith on uh, uh, introducing the facts uh, F-A-C-T-S uh, with respect to uh, mental health disease um, and I and myself who suffers from depression and anxiety uh, I echo uh, his, uh, you know, his conversation with you, and uh, in a sense, there, there is there is massive, massive stigmata against people who suffer with, with that type of disease. And there shouldn't be, which is why we try to be very open and honest about those issues, and hopefully, it's having some appreciable uh, effect about, amongst the community and the and society because. The stigma really has been a massive problem, especially when it comes to simply reaching out for help. And I know it's probably worse for men than it is for women. Just look at the suicide numbers, for instance. Uh, men die by their own hand far more frequently than the women. Some of that is that built-in nonsense machismo.
machismo bravado that you're unwilling to admit you need help and then consequently to go get help which are you know just facts that we have to talk about because it's real we have no problem talking about cancer or broken legs we shouldn't have any problem talking about mental illness uh sean appreciate the time this morning 100 percent right petty and listen long time not talk to you it was nice talking to you this morning sir take good care of yourself god bless all right bye-bye yeah, I mean, it's just part of it. And, of course, we will dig in a little more on the FACT teams and see just where we are close to or where we are with the capacity for the number of patients that should be part of it as they were set up to the seven multidisciplinary teams and had a couple of quick conversations during the newscast uh, via social media, private messages about, no doubt, and predictably, it's a staffing-related issue as to why maybe they're not doing as much as they were uh, set up to do, which was launched back in July of 2020. So we'll follow up on that. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about World Energy GH2 and the government is asking more questions of the proponent. Then we're going to talk about immigration and then we're going to speak with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Liberal member for Cornerbrook. He's the Minister of Immigration, Population Growth and Skills. That's Jerry Byrne. Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks so much, Patty, for having me on this morning. Important topic to talk about, which is part of your preamble this morning, which is a national conversation on immigration. It is. Uh, first off, there's you know there's all kinds of stories out there about immigration and preparedness for all the newcomers to the country and to the province. <clears throat> One that I hear repeatedly is just how many hotel rooms does the government currently have that no one's living in? Is that a thing? Uh, in terms of immigration, we don't have any hotel rooms that people are not living in. In fact, we've dramatically, working with the Ukrainian community, working with the ANC, led by the ANC, um, we now have basically about 200 Ukrainians in uh, in temporary accommodations, and that includes, uh, Patty, Ukrainians that just arrived this week. So, you know, the notion, we have 94% of all of our Ukrainians that have arrived in Newfoundland and Labrador since February 24th, 2022, 94% are living in community as our neighbors. We have 6% that are now uh, in temporary accommodations, and that includes people who are just arriving. They will be moving out uh, into community soon. Inside the 94% living in the community as our neighbors, how many of that, that group are being housed with federally or pardon me provincially funded monies none okay there, yeah. there um, there's no uh, rent subsidies or uh, or and none are in provincial subsidized social housing what do you make of minister miller's comments about leveling off immigration numbers in 2026 proceeding with targets of 485,000 next year 500,000 in 2025 you know the unwillingness to recognize the fact that, you know, there is a fair debate. As I said off the top, I'm unabashedly pro-immigration. But the housing issue is real. It can't be ignored or avoided. What do you make of his thoughts to not pump the brakes, as I say, this year and next year versus 26? Because it feels to me like simply an unwillingness to admit that we're not on the right track. Patty, I cannot speak for the people of Vancouver or Toronto or Montreal or even Halifax. I can only speak on the needs and the situation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, We need immigration. We are very, very different than the national conversation. When it comes to the national conversation that Minister Miller is speaking of, Every province of Canada except Newfoundland and Labrador is facing population growth with or without immigration. Newfoundland and Labrador is facing population decline for every two, uh, for every uh, for every for every baby that's born in our province, 
and this is very uniquely Newfoundland and Labrador, for every baby that's born here, we're losing two of our family or neighbour. Uh, so we have a systemic population decline, which is totally unique in all of Canada. Uh, we are the only province which is facing population decline. And while we we have unfilled jobs, we have the lowest unemployment rate in the history of Newfoundland and Labrador in recorded history. Uh, so while we grow our immigration numbers here, we're actually lowering our unemployment rate, which I think speaks volumes. So if I were to have a conversation with someone, you know, you know, a conversation where you say immigration is 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 uh, is bad, prove me wrong. What I would say is, while this national conversation occurs about immigration, stick to the Newfoundland and Labrador reality and the Newfoundland and Labrador need, because that's what I'm doing. I need to grow our population. I need to fill unfilled jobs. And I'll speak now about housing when you're, you know, in that in that formula. Sure, but uh, the population of the province did grow 1.1 percent last year. We're creeping up against 540,000. Domestic mobility and people have been moving to Atlantic Canada from other parts of the country. People have been moving to Newfoundland and Labrador from other parts of the country. But we do have some controls on setting benchmarks or thresholds for immigration. You know, we can't control if someone wants to move from Montreal to Cornerbrook, but we can certainly talk about the numbers, the impact on housing, the impact on healthcare which doesn't make anybody a bad person, is acknowledging reality. Because regardless of where someone comes from, whether it be from Syria or the Ukraine or Ireland or New York, they want the very same things. Happy, healthy, prosperous and safe. A place to live. Access to a doctor. So we do have some controls in the immigration numbers versus domestic mobility. So do you think that we have hit the targets considering the fact that the vacancy rate in St. John's is 3%. We're talking about the need to build all these units. You know, 60,000 over the course of the next six years. When this year we're going to build 899. So there are some things here that are not lining up. They're not jibing. And it's not good for anybody. Let me try to zero in on this. There, just as you know, just as there are many, many profiles of immigrants, whether they be professionals and their families, doctors and engineers and uh, others that that come to us to offer their skills, or they be refugees with no other hope left in their lives except for immigration, except for the promise of Canada and the promise of Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, it's important to understand everything about this, and there is no one housing market, Patty. Just as there is social housing, there are also housing for middle-income families. There's assisted living housing for seniors. There's those facing disabilities. There's luxury housing like Clo Valley, and there's low-income housing. So, to suggest that there is one housing, and you have not done that, but to, to the to the listener at large, to suggest that there is one housing market and the immigrant is the newcomer is only taking is is taking away from within that one housing market. That's a false straw argument. It, it's just not true. And as we, we know, the Ukrainians in particular, I'll just use this as an example, 94% of them are out in community. They're actually joining the uh, middle-income family, uh, multi, uh, multi-bedroom home. They're not only renting them, they're buying them. And as we look at our neighborhoods as they hollow out, I know in my own street where I grew up, where once there was about 40 kids in the in the five houses that are surrounded my house, uh, there's now none. There's you know the houses that I grew up in were five and six family uh, member homes. There is now vacancy. I'm just counting on my fingers. Now. A vacant home, a home with one person in it, another home with just two people in it, and and so on. So the point is, is that. 
don't analyze this from the point of view because there are those that are facing home uh, home insecurity, housing insecurity, which we need to act on and will be acting on. Don't ever think that every immigrant is exactly identically the same. They they are competing for those same needs. Our Ukrainians right now are filling a housing market, which basically, if it, in some cases would not be filled without them because, again, they're coming here with skills, they're filling jobs, they're doing, they're contributing to the economy and they're buying homes that are on the market, they're renting homes that are on the market that otherwise would be unrentable or in some respects. And I say that with, you know, from a generalized point of view, I wouldn't want to over-torque that, but that is a situation that we ha- when we analyze immigration, we have to look at its complexity. We cannot oversimplify it. We have to look at it in its totality. And that's if I can change anybody's mind, it's we are the only province in Canada that is losing its population base. We have facing population decline, the only province, the only member of the Federation. Uh, and we have a housing situation that needs to be acted on in its reality. Do not say to the economic immigrant, the immigrant that comes with a job, that comes with professional credentials, do not say to that immigrant that you are taking away housing from the, from 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 those that uh, from everybody in our province because it's just not true. We need to act on low-income housing, and we're acting on low-income housing. But economic immigration is the driver. Who do you think our healthcare professionals are that will be filling so many jobs? They are newcomers we in addition to the increased graduates from memorial university of newfoundland yeah i don't say those things but no uh, i know i know you don't but i'm just saying to those who would listen who may sort of dwell on that argument that we are taking away homes from people who would otherwise use them the person who comes to our province which is you know my primary focus it's economic immigration because that's the only space the federal government gives me room to to uh, to act in they are not taking away. They are coming with jobs. They're coming with income. They're coming with skills. They're contributing to the economy. And many of them are healthcare professionals that we need. Uh, some of them absolutely are. You know, we focus a lot on Ukrainians, and I know why. And, of course, there was a different set of circumstances and different rules applied to Ukrainian refugees, given the you know fast track of their approval to arrive in Canada, what have you. That eliminated some supports that they may have otherwise been eligible for. But with other refugees, Syrians, Afghanis, what have you, are we, are we finding a place for them to live in things like government-subsidized housing and or in hotels? People focusing on the hotel thing, I get why, but like for instance, between Syrians and Afghani refugees who are running for their very lives, very much like Ukrainians, are they also living in hotel rooms? Because I know there's lots of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians who are also being put up in hotels while we try to find transitional housing away from emergency shelters, what have you. So with those two sets, Syrians and Afghani refugees, are they finding housing in hotels or the NLA? or whatever the case may be. Uh, many of them are in temporary housing. This is um, the refugee program, and I'll differentiate between Ukraine and, and, and the incredible people that come from Afghanistan, from Syria, from Eritrea, uh, and other uh, very, very difficult spots uh, in, uh, in the world where they're looking for, for a sense of hope and a sense of opportunity. Ukrainians come, the government of Canada issues them 
by decision of the government of Canada. They're allowed to enter into Canada. They're allowed to enter into Newfoundland and Labrador without restriction. They're, they're come with a work permit. When it comes to government, federal government-assisted refugees, this is a program of the federal government. The provincial government has no uh, authority or direction over this. In fact, I find out 24 hours before a, uh, a government, federal government-assisted refugee comes here, I find out 24 hours that they are arriving, and that needs to change, something I spoke to uh, Mark Miller, Minister, Federal Immigration Minister Mark Miller, about just a few days ago. Uh, but uh, they they come with different additional supports from the federal government, and uh, they uh, they come not as refugees, they come as former refugees, because the moment they land in Canada, in Newfoundland and Labrador, they are designated by the federal government as permanent residents. So they're um, under the Constitution, the federal government, by designating them as permanent residents immediately, they are entitled to to, uh, to receive benefits the same as you or I would. And that should be the case. That is no different. That is what Canada is all about. And I make no, um, no ill-begotten defense of that. That's the proper thing to do. There's lots of stories coming from Israel and Gaza. There's one of the wartime proposals coming from the Israeli government talking about moving residents of Gaza, Palestinians, into the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt with Canada as their final destination. What do you know about that? Are we prepared for that? Because it inevitably, some people from Gaza will leave and never go back. So that is one of the stories that's coming from Jerusalem, is that Canada would be the final destination for who knows how many of the 2.2 or 2.3 uh, people or Palestinians in Gaza. Enormously uh, confident, you know, that's an issue that was basically come from um, the state of Israel. That there was a apparently um, there was a leaked document that suggested that that may be the case. I cannot verify its uh, accuracy or its truth. That was what the media report said. That Israel was suggesting that Canada could be a um, uh, a location for uh, displacement. I think Canada has resp- replied to that rumor, to that uh, that suggestion that uh, that was made on the media, saying that they have never been a Canada has never been approached with such a concept or idea that. Um, that they do not have, um, they don't believe that that's the solution. That I, I, and I, I have to be careful here because I, I haven't spoken to anybody about that. This is really fresh news. But I understand Canada has said that that's not the immediate solution. There okay. are other solutions that need to be fit. But what I can say is that Newfoundland and Labrador has always been welcoming of racialized uh, refugees from any any place where it's war-torn, and we punch above our weight in that regard. If there is a call to support, we will always be there to support. And what I asked Minister Miller to do, which he has not done, which his department has not done to date, is support Newfoundland and Labrador in its efforts to support refugees, federally appointed, assisted government refugees. Newfoundland and Labrador get short shrift, shrift in federal funding. We punch above our weight. We do more uh, in support of refugees, which is our, I believe, it's a duty of uh, a responsibility of citizenship to be a Canadian. You need to be uh, a part of this. You need to be proactive in the solutions of the world. Well, I believe that Canada owes it to Newfoundland and Labrador, who punches above its weight, to provide the resources for housing and supports for refugees, and they're not doing it, and I insist that they do. Last one. So, of course, I know you're not the social development minister. That's Paul Pike, and we talk about housing numbers. 
Minister Pike says he misspoke regarding 750 units and then 750 units became 750 housing options uh, or yeah options and then we find out good work done by Rob Antle and Ariana Kellen that the real number of units that have been constructed is 11. He says misspoke. I think that that fair enough because I misspeak all the time but that also comes along with being misled because people thought okay things are happening things are moving but the difference between 11 and 750 is is obvious and I'm not going to get you to speak for Minister Pike and I know you're not the housing minister but some of your portfolio does indeed include housing so I feel misled regardless of a uh, misspeak or not how do you react to people like me who think that I had one idea of where we were going on housing finds out we're not on that track because you can't build overnight with five point plan and federal government incentives and all the rest can indeed be helpful but we're not going to hit our housing targets and we've kind of felt like we were moving towards it when we're not your thoughts uh, you'd have every right to say that you were misled if there was a genuine attempt to mislead. If uh, Minister Pike had not said, listen, I, I used the wrong language, I bespoke, and I, I, now that it's been pointed out to me that I really did misspeak about this, I am apologizing. That's exactly what he did. Patty, I've been, you know, you've been in the situation where you've been in the hot seat for things you've said on Upland. I've been in the hot seat for things that I've said, where sometimes when you correct yourself, it shows that you have a sincere understanding that this was not the correct communication, this is not the correct information i'm correcting it and um quite frankly if if we operated if we operated any differently you any of us in any kind of a public capacity you or i or anyone else uh there wouldn't be very many people in our jobs because as you said we often misspeak so if minister pike had doubled down and said no 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 that's the truth that's you know that's this is i'm convinced that and this is the way it is and blah 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 then yeah, I guess that would be a pretty pretty damnable offense. But, but the issue there, I, Minister Byrne. But uh, uh, fair those enough. Of us who do not make mistakes, cast the first throw. Admitting to shortcomings, mistakes, misspeaks is all part of it. But in fairness, the acknowledgement wasn't made until the news story broke. And no question, ministers have staff that would have heard the comments coming from Minister Pike and said, wait, no, that's not accurate. Someone in the executive branch would have said, whoa, that's not true. Or maybe the premier's office or any of his other colleagues sitting in the Liberal caucus and or cabinet. So apologizing after the fact doesn't come with the full weight of apologizing for a misspeak prior to a news story being broke. I'll, I'll put that out there. That's well, not trying I to be unfair. That's I just reality. The comment was made in, in Gander away from where the, the, uh, the media was. I, listen, I can't comment on that in the sense that I don't know who exactly knew what or when and, and, and what was done about it, but uh, I just know that the comment was made in an after-speech after scrum in Gander away from some of the media. So anyway, listen, it's, uh, the, my, my view is in all of this is that um, if, when you're dealing with statistics, facts and figures, be as accurate as you possibly can, but if you misspeak and you find out that you misspeak, correct the record uh, as reasonably quickly as possible. And um, and to those amongst us who have never, ever made a mistake, go ahead and cast the first stone. Appreciate the time. Appreciate it. Thank you, Patty. Take care, Mr. Byrne. Bye-bye. Oops, a little quick on the button there. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, uh, MNL President Amy Cody is there to talk about the new almost receiving royal assent, the Towns and Local Service Districts Act being read through second reading in the House of Assembly just yesterday. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Leonard Force, I want to the president at Municipalities Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Amy Cody. Good morning, Amy. You're on the air. 
Hi, Patty. Good morning. Nice to talk to you. Pleasure to have you on the show. It was nice to meet you last week just while the convention was here in town. Okay, so with the Towns and Local Service Districts Act, some good things in it for municipalities, I would think, certainly when you remove some 11 ministerial approvals, you know, a bit more freedom, removing some bureaucracy. Your takeaway from what we're hearing? Well, we, you know, I mean, we've been asking for a revised uh, Municipalities Act for many years, the last five years for sure. We've been really pushing for this. So to see this now go to a second reading, um, you know, the Towns and Local Service Districts Act, um, to see a lot of the suggestions that we brought forward come to fruition in this new proposed act, you know, we're happy with what we're seeing so far. Clearly, we have a lot of reading to do. It's a massive of document. We're doing the deep dive at the office. We're working with our legal partners as well. They're doing their review. But for, you know, at the onset, um, we're pleased with what we're seeing and we're, you know, we're looking forward to seeing, um, you know, how it rolls through, how the the process is going to carry out. What are some of the big questions that you have? Oh, well, basically just, you know, how long is it going to take? Uh, we've been waiting for a while. We've gone through the second reading. We're intently listening to um, the opposition, what they're saying, what our members are uh, reaching out to us as they go through the document as well. Um, are there any red flags that are coming up from them? So it's still early for us in reviewing the document. We had our brief um, with the Department of Municipal and Provincial Affairs and Minister Hagee, and he gave us, you know, took us through the highlights and whatnot. Um, so again, we're just, you know, we're working through. Um, we had two resolutions presented at our conven- at our conference um, last week on first lien and accommodations tax. Um, you know that were passed by our members. We're pleased to see that uh, proposed in the new legislation. So, you know, a lot of things that we're working out. There's some going to be some differences there on the uh, the property tax and the elimination of the poll tax. Um, we're pleased to see, you know, that there will be one consistent tax. Um, but also we know that uh, property tax is regressive. Um, you can't sustain communities on property tax alone. So we are looking and working with our partners at FCM on, on um, a new fiscal uh, fiscal framework. Um, so, you know, we'll continue to look at that. But the ability to um, charge a business tax, um, the ability to be flexible in that tax if you charge it what you charge again the accommodations tax flexibility in that that's not to say that we have to charge that but the ability is there for us to generate different sources of revenue so we're we're confident um in how it's been moving so far and what we're seeing but we're interested in digging into it a little deeper so when i get a chance to speak with minister haggy on this one for the information sharing for other municipal leaders members of mnl the general population because it won't impact any of the big cities like Mount Pearl, Cornerbrook, or St. John's, but it will impact so many municipalities, of which we have 275 incorporated municipalities and all the LSDs. So give me two or three questions that you think are most important for your understanding and your membership that I should ask the minister. Well, I think the, um, you know, it was made clear that the government is not pursuing regionalization. We do see that there are, you know, we still have the ability to work regionally um, to support each other through shared services and whatnot. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how that model moves forward. What are their thoughts on that? Um, I guess the, the, you know, the uh, removal of um, several of the ministerial approvals, um, you know, what was the rationale for that? 
that? How do they see that being a benefit to the provincial government as well as a benefit to municipalities? Um, you know, how can we start to take advantage of that? How can we work that through to our members? How do we make sure our members are completely informed on, you know, how that can be beneficial to them to make sure that we're doing it properly as well? Um, just clarity, basically, on a lot of the the changes. Um, you know, first lien is another uh, item that we asked for. So again, it's just g- giving um, members the tools really to be able to do what we have wanted to do for so long, uh, recognizing the important work that municipal leaders do and how much work it is to run a community and a municipality. Um, so just again, Having the clarification there on all of those points, um, we've talked about it with the minister and we've been assured this is a living document as well and will be treated as such. So even, you know, once this one moves through, we always have that open line of communication that we can go back to the minister, we can go back to the department, have conversations and clarify and suggest change or, um, you know, different ways of doing things that maybe we didn't see right off the top, but as we move through, through and work out the kinks, um, you know, we can see how maybe we can approach things differently and in alternate ways. You know, one thing that jumped out to me was we know smaller municipalities having a hard time even filling out the application for access to monies from the Housing Accelerator Fund. So shared housing coordinator could be very beneficial, if, even if they take on for the next 60 days. Nothing but that. That might be good for municipalities. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, uh, Amy, on this one. And when you say first lien, I'm just naturally assuming you mean L-I-E-N. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The ability to put a ta- to place a tax on a property. If I can just have another minute to just explain that a little bit further. Sure. A lot of times when we have like dilapidated buildings in our communities and things like that, property owners aren't willing to, um, you know, take that building down or do the necessary uh, improvements to that. At least the community now would have the ability to, if they took that building down and did that work, the ability to place a tax, a lien on that property so that we could recover the costs and the expenses associated with us doing that work. A lot of times, without having that ability, we were hesitant and not able in in most uh, instances to deal with those properties. So now we have the ability to do that, to recover the expenses. So it gives us the opportunity to clean up our towns, to address some of those um, issues that are probably deterring other businesses or residents from moving into our communities, gives us access to land and, you know, a whole bunch of things that we never had the ability to do before. So the big thing for us and what we were asking for in the new legislation is for it to be enabling. What we're seeing so far shows that it is enabling, so that's very encouraging to us. Um, it's what we asked for. It looks like it's what we're getting on the surface. So as we deep, dig deeper into it, like I said, it's a 146-page document. It's a massive document. Um, it's a lot of reading and a lot of interpretation. So um, off the top, it's enabling. That's what we asked for, um, and our memberships are working through it. Appreciate the time as usual, Amy. Thanks for this. Yeah, always a pleasure, Patty. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Take good care.
You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Amy Cody, the president at MNL. And what do you know? We're going to dig in a little bit further to this because it obviously have widespread impact for so many communities. Coming up right after the break is the Liberal member for Gander. He's the Minister of Municipal and Provincial Affairs. That's John Haggy. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Let's say good morning to the Liberal member for Gander. He's the Minister of Municipal and Provincial Affairs. That's Dr. John Haggy. Minister Haggy, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Not too bad, sir. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Top shelf, as somebody used to say. <laughs> there you go. I should incorporate that a little more often. Okay, so <laughs> this is fairly new. It's fairly comprehensive document. I'll freely admit to not being fully familiar with it. But in the world of, you know, reducing bureaucracy, freedom, flexibility, give us some examples of some of the, what were the 11 ministerial approvals required to adjust bylaws in one community or another. So what's been removed? What we've done is we've looked at this from the lens of what MNL gave us and what the uh, consultations with local service districts uh, brought us. We've actually got a what we heard document up on the website. And if you took that and compared it with uh, the draft bill, you'd see there's a lot there that's moved from one to the other. Um, for example, at the moment, if a a community uh, wanted to attract a business uh, and there was a nice lot for sale in the appropriately zoned area but they wanted to give a, a bit of a discount to uh, the business uh, if they wanted to sell it below fair market value um, which is defined arbitrarily by third party um, that would have had to come to the minister now a two-thirds vote of council will allow a, uh, a community to, to do that and maybe you know, give a, uh, a leg up to uh, social enterprise or uh, uh, a private doctor's office, those kind of things, if that's what they wanted. Fair enough. And then one of the quotes you talk about the rule of the poll tax. I mean, we've long known that it's still in practice in this province, which is just unbelievable in 2023. You call it regressive. I would also suggest a property tax is also a, a regressive form of taxation. But you say over the course of three years while these changes take place, then you'll finally see a change. Meaning what? Basically, there is time needed for communities to figure out how to that use poll tax, how to shift away from it and make sure they don't have any kind of fiscal gaps. Uh, similarly, uh, the Municipal Assessment Agency is the uh, body constituted at arm's length to do these assessments. And obviously, that will take uh, time to do. And so between discussions with both sides, um, three years seem to be a reasonable length of time to get those properties assessed that hadn't been assessed, and then for allowing communities that use the poll tax to move towards the taxation options that are baked into the new act. So you can either have uh, a property tax based on a straight mill rate, or you can say, well, we'll have a base rate and a much smaller mill rate. And the individual towns need to work out what's better for them. But again, it's a choice and they have the flexibility to choose. Well, you know, this re regionalization kind of went nowhere. There was lots of work done with the initial working groups. It got kicked around a bit. There was lots of pushback, I think, understandably so, with the local service districts having all those big questions, and they weren't in involved in the initial work being done at MNL. So I get why it kind of unraveled. But when we talk about collaboration or partnership or shared services, what changes inside this act, whether it be to encourage and or to make it more available? I like the concept of a shared housing coordinator because MNL has been complaining about about the inability to even fill out paperwork for monies from the federal government. So what does this act do to push collaboration further down the road? 
it basically takes away any potential or perceived restriction. I mean, in the old Act, if it wasn't actually written in the Act, you couldn't do it. In, in essence, in the new Act, um, except for a few uh, mandatory areas, uh, if it isn't mentioned in the Act, you can do it if council thinks it's a good idea. So, for example, a group of, of, um, of communities could get together pool their resources and maybe uh, uh, get accounting services or office back-end services to help them with paperwork. Everyone would benefit, uh, and uh, that would be a decision solely of the councils involved. Uh, the, the government department would not have uh, any any role in that, and the, the, the towns and communities could do it themselves. Um, so <clears throat> there's lots of things. I mean, you can, you can then expand that to services like uh, fire protection, you could expand it to uh, recreational facilities. I know there are communities that do band together to, to look after an arena and these kind of things. So that would make it a lot easier to do and, and a lot less formal from the point of view of government structures. Set against that as well, there are there is legislation on the books, for example, about regional services boards. And one of the things that came out of my predecessor's work around the subject of regional collaboration was how and whether or not we could use them. They basically, at the moment, I mean, there's there's eight RSBs, and I think only five of them actually function, uh, and mostly in the space of waste management, but. Some do fire protection, uh, and we would look at seeing what other things could be baked in there and maybe smaller communities uh, in the future could uh, buy services from them as a subscription service, for example. But again, those are potential options at the moment. It's a very live issue with um, communities, and it's back in their ballpark. Does this impact the way that smaller communities would apply for cost-sharing, whether it be with the province and or the federal government? The cost-sharing allocation formula looked like it was going to work, but it still puts smaller communities in a real tough spot to try to come up with their contribution to whatever project we're talking about, playgrounds or otherwise. So does anything here change how communities can approach this as a regional solution for infrastructure or otherwise and the cost-sharing allocation formula? What we've done on a short-term basis is we put in place um, uh, a community collaboration grant um, uh, pro program, and the applications for that closed a couple of days ago. So we're just going to begin the evaluation process uh, around that. But you know, in terms of trying to uh, apply for grants, we've not changed anything that isn't covered directly under this act, and that specifically isn't referenced in there. Uh, municipal taxation, which may have a role here, is actually under separate legislation. There are some obvious mentions of that in the appropriate section of this Act, but it's more in terms of a framework rather than an actual how they would do it. Internally in the department, uh, we've looked at MOGs and we have recognised that, uh, you know, uh, municipalities uh, have, have kind of slipped a little bit in terms of the funding through that source and we, we put in $3 million last year and we're going to put in another uh, this year so that's effectively a 27% pay rise over two years so um, we're optimistic that that will uh, help ease the burden on some of the communities as, uh, as they go into the next fiscal cycle. There will be various departments including included in this conversation about repurposing government-owned buildings, you know, whether it be for housing or whatever the case may be because even if it's just a shed uh, carrying cost for insurance or what have you, do we have a real roster of what is out there owned by the government that's not currently used for the purpose it was built for and what might be done with it? 
I know that would re- rest with transportation and infrastructure, and I know that was a subject that uh, we've discussed. They're in the process, as I understand it, of uh, uh, completing entry uh, with the idea of looking at government footprint and you know assets that uh, are redundant. Uh, so that would be better addressed to Minister Abbott's shop. Does your department play an active role beyond the fact that there might be the, uh, the establishment of a housing coordinator, a shared housing coordinator, because it's not just St. John's facing housing issue, and it's not just in Cornerbrook, for instance. It could be many small communities. So with their, the pressure to come up with the data and to fill out the application properly to get federal monies, and there's $4 billion out there, does or should your department play a more active role to ensure the municipalities get that type of help right away? That's an interesting discussion, and certainly it's one we are having in the department. We do have a very active uh, municipal support division, and I'd like to give a shout-out to uh, to the staff there in the, my own department and also in the regional offices across the province. They are a resource for... Uh, towns, but they are really more in the sense of explaining process and options rather than um, actually the filling out of the form. That's where we go back to the conversation we started with, which around regional collaboration, regional coordinators. The department really doesn't have the local knowledge sometimes uh, that would be required to fill in some of this paperwork. Um, one of the other issues is I know that through intergovernmental affairs, there is a big discussion with the feds uh, about the complexity of some of their application forms. They really are not user-friendly, and um, we've made uh, that comment known to them. You might not have the local knowledge uh, understood, but you would have people that have maybe the digital or the tech horsepower to help navigate what is a very cumbersome and clumsy application document and process. Uh, Just very quickly, I know you had said there was options to replace the poll tax. Inside the world of taxing businesses, is it also full flexibility, tax breaks available to lower business, a different tax structure for one classification of business or industry, commercial or otherwise. Is that the flexibility that they now have? The short answer, Paddy, is yes. It was, there was a lot of that in the old act, but we've really ported that straight over to the new legislation. You can, as a municipality, divide classes of business and subclasses of business and set rates for that. What you can't do is charge one gas station owner one tax rate mm-hmm. and one another. But again, there is a provision for um, accommodation for financial hardship. There is an accommodation for uh, charities uh, and uh, not-for-profit social enterprises. So if a, um, a community decided that they would give a discount to all not-for-profit businesses, they could do that across the classes should they choose to do it. So it really is quite a matrix of flexibility that uh, is potentially there. And again, again, finally, there was a request for a tourist accommodation tax uh, as an option mm-hmm. to uh, and um, uh, both the tourism accommodation groups and MNL were really keen on this and that's put in there as well. Yeah, that accommodation tax went a long way to building the convention centre in mile one here in the city of St. John. Some people don't like it but a lot of money was uh, raised from it. I probably have a lot more I'd like to consider but uh, I think we're out of time and I think you have to go as well so we'll pick this up again uh, in the very near future. Delighted, Paddy. Call any time and uh, we'll see if we can set another date. Oh, very quickly. When do we see maybe some move on legislation regarding Mount Pearl, Cornerbrook, St. John's, whether it be like water tax exemption, ride sharing like Uber? Is that in the offing in the near future? 
Well, the, the ride-sharing bill has gone through the House, and Minister Studley will be able to speak to the operationalization okay. of that. From the point of view of the city's legislation, that's next on our list once we get this off the books. It's still committee stage, uh, the uh, Town and Local Service District Act, before it can receive royal assent. So uh, that's uh, another, just a small step before we get started on that. Appreciate the time, Minister. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Uh, John Haggy, uh, Dr. John Haggy, Minister of Municipal and Provincial Affairs. All right, time for the news. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Good day. Is Duran coming on to talk world energy? Terrific. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to line number one. Good morning, Duran. You're on the air. Hi, how are you doing? Doing well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing very well. Uh, I'm just calling in to comment about the minister's decision yesterday uh, requiring more information from the proponent, World Energy, uh, in regards to the uh, environmental impact statement that they had provided. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, how well uh, happy we are that uh, uh, the concerns of local citizens and groups have uh, have been acknowledged by the government. Um, you know, it, it's refreshing to see that many of the concerns that have been brought up over the past several months, or actually more than a year, uh, by you know groups such as the ETC and Firewatch and, and others uh, regarding this project and the. Proposed a, uh, the the deficiencies that were observed within the EIS in itself. Um, you know, I, I have to admit we've we've come a long way. Uh, you know, the process uh, and the desire by the company to push this project ahead as quickly as possible is still somewhat concerning. Um, but it's refreshing that uh, you know when you consider the onset uh, regarding concerns that were being brought forth by locals, you know where we're passed off as being fear mongers, you know. Uh, people uh, putting out misinformation, disinformation and whatnot, uh, which were strategies used by the company to try and discredit uh, those concerns. Uh, it's, it's nice to see that these concerns have actually come to light and are actually front and centre uh, for everyone within the province to see for themselves. Um, Durant, Durant, do you think there's also... Yeah. Uh, you know, there's questions that are fine because we got to get these things right, and everyone should be able to acknowledge that. The company, of course, would like to move as fast as possible because they've got a market they want to capture. But do you think there might be an air of not in my backyard? Because other projects, it's just amazing to me that World Energy GH2 gets all the energy, all the air. I think some of that has to do with John Risley. And yes, you know, 40% of the Port of Port Peninsula will be peppered with windmills. So do you think that there's any NIMBY involved in some of the concerns, pushback, or questions? Uh, well, actually, NIMBYism is considered an archaic term, and, and, you know, traditionally that was something that was used uh, to refer to that. But it, it's, a, it's a much bigger thing than that uh, when you consider the, the impact it would have on the region. And, and the sole beneficiary from this, you know, uh, region-wise, is going to be the town of Stephenville, not necessarily the Port-au-Port Peninsula. When you look at 
the the size of the project and you know the effect it's going to have on the you no know, not just the environment but the people and their livelihoods uh, that's something that cannot be easily overlooked it's not like you're putting in one or two towers you know uh, to augment the electrical system and provide electricity to the you know the local market this is something that's being done as part of you know what I'd like to make a correction on what Mr. Reiser was saying yesterday um, that this is actually an industrial endeavor because everything that's being produced, all the hydrogen in that, is intended solely for export to foreign markets. True, it is not for local consumption. And so, to put out there the what I consider greenwashing, um, you know, by the company in that is is really disingenuous because um, it. Uh, plays down on the concerns of locals and the impact that it will have. And, you know, um, to allude to, you know, statements that were said yesterday about, oh, you know, reducing the, uh, the, the carbon footprint for the province and its provincial goals, yes, that is great in itself. However, uh, if these, uh, um, you know, hydrogen uh, technologies were being deployed in Newfoundland and that the supply was being provided in Newfoundland, I could see where that statement would be accurate, you know. It but was just a question. At- I'm not accusing you or anyone else of doing oh, it. No, no, I'm just no, putting no, it out there. Oh, no. Uh, oh, yeah. And it's valid, yes. Okay. So, in addition, I do not understand the technology in full. I've done my level best to try to uh, come up, be up to speed on this. But here's where I think we're going to have a potential just a remake of the problem. Is they've gone back to asking about water use and monitoring, baseline data, information, cumulative effects, mitigation plans, contingency plans, emergency response plans. Inside things like emergency response plans, most lay people will be able to understand what the protocols and process might look like. But in the technical world, so they go back to the government with their answers to the questions being posed. And then there's another 50-day window for public feedback. And 70 days after submission, a decision will be made. I tried to read the 4,000-page document. Well, after a while, I admit it to myself, I don't even know what I'm reading here. So do you think we're just going to have so much more technical jargon come back that it's just another window of opportunity, but we're going to be faced with the same daunting task of trying to sift through a lot of very complex info? Yes, and that's this is where the government really has to step in, in my opinion. Uh, you know, totally relying on just the the local populace and and people that are just laypersons like myself, you know, and yourself that that are trying our best to understand the 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 technical jargon that's being put out there. This is where the government needs to step in and and hold their public inquiries, provide financial assistance to. Uh, groups to get their own experts in there that can actually sit down and put all this in layman's terms, you know, to where it satisfies everyone. Because as long as something like this is out there and there's questions that, you know, are, are left unanswered and the document is too complex for many people to comprehend, that's going to lead to, you know, further distrust, further uh, confusion and further resistance, right? So, you know, and, and so to say, put all put all your cards on the table, right, and and make it an even playing ground for everyone, not just the billionaires or the people that have the money to invest in all this. And and that's another interesting thing I'd like to point out is that the onset of this project, it was announced by Risley during one of his community sessions back, I believe, July sixth of twenty twenty two, that there would be no public funding for this project. This was all totally going to be done by private investment. And now you step forward a year and you're looking at the company demanding essentially 
subsidies, you know, to to help this project go forward. And when you look at the world market right now, granted, you know, they want to get in there. They want to get in as quickly as they can, get their product out there. Well, then that's, that's you know, further opportunity for mishaps and and shortcuts to be taken, you know, to meet these deadlines. And when you look at companies like in, in Sweden, like Ledenfall, and you have Orsted, and you have uh, G, uh, not GE, Siemens right now, uh, the Siemens games, uh, they're, you know, essentially shut down because of quality uh, issues with their wind turbines. And that's because they're being made so big so fast that they cannot guarantee the, the quality control of these monstrous machines. And you look at the other companies, uh, as I mentioned, uh, they've seen a 40% increase in the cost of these projects. And so you're looking at projects that are being delayed or even canceled altogether across parts of uh, Europe and even to the U.S., uh, you know, where the companies are stating that they cannot go forward without further government subsidies and so what happens with newfoundland and canada you know you've got a mega project uh, that went from initially being totally privately funded to where now it needs uh you know or demands uh subsidies in order for it to be fully viable and at what point you know when they totally realize that the costs uh you know far exceed what their predicted uh, uh finances were are able to handle uh, what what happens then? Did it come back to the government looking for more money? Does the project stall? Does it stop? And I don't know. Also, There's tons of money out there for them, though. I mean, the federal yeah. government's incentive for clean tech and what have you is very generous. And, of course, that was all in direct relationship to the Americans bringing in their Inflation Reduction Act because you couldn't see all that capital flooding out of the country. This is not me being on-site or off-site with one industry, one company, one proponent or another. It's just the facts of the matter. Is Had the, uh, the, national, the federal government, pardon me, not done something in so-called retaliation to the Americans, very generous money's being thrown around for clean tech and innovation, we'd be left in a lurch. So, and this is not about Risley or anybody else. This is just about the the world of innovation and clean tech. Uh, if yeah. there was one specific area where you think we need more layman's terms for people to just be able to grasp exactly what's happening or what's being proposed, is there one specific area or two you'd like to mention before I run out of time? No, it's not one specific area. I would think it's it's in the document in, in general, right? It it has to be, you know, it has a if if you can't put it in layman's terms, which would take a lot of time and effort, well then allow people to, you know, get the finances to hire their own experts, ones that can explain and understand what, you know, what this is all about. And as I previously mentioned, you know, um granted yes, you you are correct with reference to uh, subsidies are not being offered, but if you look back at the onset of this project, what was appealing to the province and that overall and to the people was the fact that the claims were it would be totally privately invested. No government subsidies were needed. And when you see the total switch around on that, you know, that, that leads to a lot of additional concern. You know, um, you know what happened at the onset to where all this private investment was what was a driving factor behind this to now to where it's totally spun around to where essentially it can't be done unless the government helps out. Yeah, there's not you know? too many industries that don't have that exact same business model with government supports, tax breaks or subsidies or grants or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't even think you can make a final decision on these things until we understand where the power is coming from that they require, their relationship with our own grid. That stuff is yeah. still way up in the air. So, yeah, and, and, and that's, yes, yeah, sorry. And that's an interesting thing, too, when you talk about power from the grid. Uh, when you look at 
documents that were provided uh, through NALCOR back in September of 2021. They discussed the the uh, possible need of these companies drawing from the grid and the effect it would have on the market. And they discussed there, I actually had the documents, uh, to where they state that to meet that demand, that uh, NALCOR would have to fire up gas turbines to augment the electrical system. Maybe. Which, Maybe but, gas turbines. Which, uh, well, it's in the document. I can provide it to you. I'm just repeating oh. what it says on there. Uh, gas turbines to augment the electrical system to meet the demands, which would result in higher uh, costs for consumers in general. And okay. so, you know, that that is other things we had to look at, too, as we have to not just look at the benefits that are going to be coming in, but what exactly are we as a country and province going to be paying out to, to meet this company's goals, you know, and, and to achieve that. Understood, Duran. I appreciate the time and your patience this morning. Thank you. Okay, you have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Uh, Charlie, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Patty. Morning. Can I start with a Halloween story this morning? I suppose. <laughs> this is a true story. You, uh, you, you, you know Don Jr. is on, uh, on, on the testifying today, but a little story about him uh, that was posted online some time ago. Uh, Halloween night, he took half of his uh, daughter's candy and uh, gave it to the kids who stayed at home. And uh, he said, uh, it's never too early to start teaching them about socialism. That was his post, right? Yeah, that's, he's done that repeatedly over the years. Yeah, I, I saw I saw a, a, a good reply to it. A, a, a guy said, "We're having a Republican Halloween this year. We we give the the first one percent of the kids all the candy, and trust they will share it uh, with 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 all the other kids." I thought it was pretty good, but anyway. Okay. Uh, regarding uh, Newfoundland hockey players in NHL, uh, Matthew Phillips, his mom is from. Uh, this province from Happy Adventure. His, his grandparents live here. Mm-hmm. You're probably aware of that. Yes, he's, he was traded to uh, from Calgary to Washington. Yeah, I've seen that. And, uh, we we regard him as a, as, as a Newfoundlander, even though he, he grew up in Alberta. But uh, he's doing quite well, as far as I understand. He's I believe he's the smallest player in the NHL at five foot seven, about 140 pounds. But anyway, I just like to mention him because the other people seem to get most of the attention, which which is fine, right? His name is Michael, right? Uh, Matthew. Oh, Matthew Phillips. Matthew, rather, yeah. Okay. Um, Patty, regarding the health care thing, uh, you've heard me talk about this before. You know, we bumble along, and as you said, it's a reactive system. But we don't do very well here in Newfoundland. We, we spend more uh, probably per person than anywhere else, but we, uh, our results seem to be less. Just a couple of little anecdotes. I don't know if this means anything at all. I was discussing this with my brother uh, a few days ago. We grew up with a small uh, uh, crew of people, uh, boys our age, and we were looking at how many are still alive. <laughs> and uh, I know it's a small sample size, probably around uh, 20. Uh, we figured out there was only four or five, four or five is left of, of, of this group, right? And I don't know if it means anything or not, but uh, all the ones that are left uh, uh, are, are fairly skinny. <laughs> what do you think about that? <laughs> and, and the other anecdote, if you watch CBC, uh, 
uh, and NTV, the birthdays and anniversaries. Uh, those people uh, living uh, in, in their 90s and 100s, uh, I'd say 95% of them all seem to be small. Now, I don't know if this means anything. I know they've done studies on rats that the less you eat, the longer the rats live. Animal studies have shown that over and over. I don't know if they've done anything with uh, human beings on that. Do you know of anything? I don't, but of course, body mass and BMI, that kind of stuff, is not necessarily the be-all and end-all. My father was a pretty big guy. He lived until he was 86 years old. Average lifespan in the country now for men, I think, is around... 82 for women, always higher than it is for men for a variety of reasons. But sure, your level of health is directly related to your lifespan. So, I mean, we're living longer than ever before. 100 years ago, average age was around 60. And now both men and women is over 80. So there's a lot of reasons why. And so, yeah, there's probably a correlation of some variety between your girth and your lifespan. I don't know what that might be, but I certainly know, even in my father's respect, he's a big guy. I mean, dad was, oh, geez, that was six foot three, 265 pounds. I mean, he was a monster of a man. And uh, he lived pretty long, but uh, I, I can't argue your point. Uh, overall health and how much you eat. I mean, just look at other uh, countries in the world where people are Notably smaller, for instance, than North Americans. Let's say in China, for instance. Lifespan, they're different than it is here. And some of that's related to diet and their lifestyle. And so, yeah, it all plays a role, of course. Yeah, I'd, uh, related to this, I'd like to talk about meat for a minute. I was on about red meat, uh, if you recall, uh, a few months back. Uh, they did a study of restaurants. Uh, hamburgers, I think the highest one was 14% uh, beef, and the rest was uh, tissue, uh, brain tissue, spinal cord, uh, connective tissue and you, you name it I'll make a prediction for you now uh, the uh, in, in sick animals uh, cows uh, there's a uh, protein called prion and they found some relationship with uh, Alzheimer's and the prion in human beings in fact there's been a connection made that eating uh, uh, infected animals, this would be of the brain tissue and the spinal cord, that uh, it can, it can uh, affect humans. Now, they haven't made the connection with that yet with Alzheimer's, but my prediction is in the, in the next decade uh, they, they will. I think this, this outbreak of Alzheimer's uh, has some kind of direct connection with that, that prion that they found, they found in both samples. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Fair enough, Charlie. Appreciate the time. Uh, I'm sorry. I thought you wanted to comment. I, I had one, one more comment. Oh, I have nothing to say about red meat. I'm having steak for supper when I go out tomorrow night. <laughs> okay. Um, on the Israeli Hamas thing, yeah. what we've learned over the years is this, and, and the United States has, has learned it. If you go in and indiscriminately uh, uh, link uh, and kill people along with, along with terrorists, the local population... Uh, if you have a family member or children that you've had uh, killed, maimed, or whatever, these people will not generally support you in the future. In fact, many of them will, will embrace terrorist actions against you. And, and Israel, in my mind, is making the same mistake here. I noticed they said something about uh, uh, some of them moving to Canada. 
One of the things is not publicly stated, but I'm sure it's part of that right-wing government. They would like to see people move out and not come back there. And I've no doubt this is being incorporated in their policy of this mass bombing and uh, supplies not being uh, medical supplies and food, uh, fuel and so on. So... In, when they attacked Hezbollah in, the, uh, in Lebanon some years back, uh, militarily they won, and they'll win militarily now. But they found that Hezbollah then came back stronger than ever. It uh, wasn't the same for ISIS and al-Qaeda, because these two groups weren't supported by local populations, and uh, they were somewhat successful against them. But Israel is making the same mistake with this vengeful thing they're, they're doing. They're creating more terrorists than, than they'll ever destroy. That's my opinion on it. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll finish on that. It's what happens when there's a vacuum created, right? More often yes. than not. And, and, and they're, not, they're not saying this is the political solution that will follow. We will help you rebuild and uh, try to have uh, uh, more contact and uh, so on. Offer hope to the people, to the Palestinians, who are not terrorists, but they're not doing that. They're simply creating enemies. Anyway. Thanks, Charlie. Okay, sir. Take bye-bye. care. All right, bye-bye. Very quickly, before we get to the break, missing pet. Let's go. So this lady emailed me, asked me if I would do it, and I'm happy to say, oh, I'm not happy to say it, I'm happy to do it for her, but unfortunately, they lost their pet cockatiel on Halloween night. Flew out and got lost. They live on O'Reilly Street, saw the bird fly off towards Cornwall Avenue. She was spotted yesterday morning around Craig Miller Avenue in Cornwall Heights. So if you see this little cockatiel, which of course is not... Uh, natural to see in the wild then we know who who it uh, belongs to so it's gray with a flare of yellow uh, on top and some red on the cheek so if you see a cockatiel please do indeed let us know if you see it you can call bonnie at 709-690-6350 have that number if indeed you've seen that cockatiel the bird let's take a break don't go away Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go. Line number four. Eugene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. I just pulled over now, and I can talk to you there, brother. First of all, thank you to your producer, David, and yourself and VOCM for giving me the opportunity to talk about the seriousness of moose vehicle accidents on our highways. Patty, I just drove through Terranova National Park, and in the last three weeks, we've had six more moose vehicle accidents, so it's a total of 21 there now, which is very serious, of course. Uh, You know, that could be 21 accidents that there's people disabled uh, we haven't had anyone killed as far as I know in Terranova National Park uh, this year in the last while but we have over the years uh, and uh, yeah and we've had five people killed in the last few months in Newfoundland so uh, some time ago in meetings with the, the superintendent of Terranova National Park and, and and the federal government representatives that we did get uh, 30, the, the rights, well, they did cut the brush back 30 feet. Now, we were trying to get it 80 feet in, in the national parks, Grossmore and Terranova, but we got 30 feet, which, you know, it was better than none because first didn't look like they were going to touch it at all because they're beautiful trees in the national park. But anyway, now it's starting to grow up again. We need the brush cut back and we need fencing because... 
I, like I said back then, I say now, uh, there is fencing in national parks. And you've been across Canada, and I'm sure you've been in national parks, and you see that there is fencing for deers or whatever. So, I mean, a national park is a national park, so there's no reason why we shouldn't have fencing there if, if necessary. I mean, 21 accidents in the last year, it, I think it's necessary. So more has to be done. Our government is not listening, as of now anyway. Uh, our government is not listening. The brush needs to be cut. Uh, we need seated. The ditch is seated. We, we need clear, uh, visibility so we can see the moose before he's through our windshield, like happened to me. And, and uh, we're absolutely necessary. We need fencing. And uh, so what might have to be done is what was done before is we might have to do a petition across the province and maybe even demonstrate and go to the floor and take it to the floor of the House of Assembly to try to get some action, Patty. Fair enough. Yeah, and I mean, not in all, not all national parks. I lived in a national park in Alberta, but the yep. uh, park next door in Banff had pretty serious uh, accommodations made for trying to protect the motoring public. They actually had uh, fences funneling the wildlife, notably elk and the bighorn sheep and what have you. They actually funnel them into an underpass, so they walk under the highway to get to the other side. So they do some pretty elaborate yep. stuff there. Yes, it was bad that I was thinking about because I've drove through there a good few times. And yesterday, you know, they have the overpasses there for them and everything. And it's so they have went overboard, which is good. You should to try to save people's lives. And our government got to do the same. I mean, you know, it's just not good enough. Everybody is scared to death to drive at night. Stay off the road if you it's in any way possible at night because you don't know when this could be your last day. Last night. So anyway, more has to be done. We, we might have to get a petition done across the province. Might have to get it presented on the floor of the House Assembly this spring. More has to be done. We, we can't let people be injured and killed. We, we have hundreds of accidents this year, one of the worst years yet, and hundreds of people uh, uh, injured and some of them disabled, and five people killed in the last few months. I mean, what else do had to be done so the government take this serious? And Minister Abbott, please. Uh, you're a very concerned person, as far as I know of you, anyway. So take this uh, and do something with it and get the, 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 the brush out of the way. Get seated so we got grass in our ditches. Get fencing where absolutely necessary. That's 16 kilometers on the west coast. I have actually got videos from the RCMP in that area when I was, was chair of SOPAC years ago that this is preventing accidents from happening. This is a good cause. This is, this is a good thing. So, yes, fencing works. We know it. Why would they be spending all the money fencing in New, in New Brunswick and places together if it wasn't working? So we got to get more done. And when I seen that today, I said, I got to, although you know I'm a broken record, but I got to call in, let the people know, driving through Terranova National Park, please scan the area, slow down, be careful, because we've had 21 accidents in the last year. Appreciate the time, Eugene. Thank have a good one, brother. You too. Thank you for the time. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, let's keep rolling. And yes, I mean, obviously, can't and shouldn't dismiss concerns with how safe or unsafe it might be traveling the highways and the byways. I mean, I saw there was a moose in the east end of town the other day. So they're everywhere. So it's eyes peeled as usual. Let's continue. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly elected in and serving the folks in Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Not too bad. Thanks. You? Uh, I'm, I'm doing doing well. Patty, before I get to my topic, um, I just want to put it out there that I did um, called in last week. I think you were off. I was talking to Linda, and um, I had uh, raised the issue of the scathing report coming out of um, Memorial University. And Linda had asked me about um, 
the public accounts uh, committee uh, because I think my former colleague Jim Bennett had, had called in before that and talked about it's something that should go to public accounts uh, to, to, to question this report. Anyway, Linda asked me, you know, uh, have the committee been active, whatever, and I said, I haven't heard a whole lot uh, coming out of it, to be honest, and, uh, and I didn't, that is true, but uh, there was a report came out yesterday, and uh, that committee has been uh, has been pretty active on some stuff. I'm not on the committee, so I wasn't aware, but anyway, I, I wouldn't want to leave the impression that they weren't active when they actually were active, so I just want to put that just to... Uh, set the record straight. That's all. And we did hear from Memorial University, the uh, president, Dr. Neil Bowes, was on the show a day or two after the report came out and after we had a chance to speak with Denise Hanrahan, who of course is the province's auditor general. They've implemented some uh, policy shifts and changes, you know, that were reflected inside the audit that uh, Denise, or pardon me, Ms. Hanrahan did, but they're not all the way there. So we had a pretty good conversation with Dr. Bowes as well. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, and there's definitely lots of work that, that needs to be done, which is pretty obvious from that report. But anyway, uh, I called in, uh, I wanted to call in and talk about the GH2 um, um, report and the decision that came down by the minister to uh, pause the, the process to get more information and allow for more uh, public input. Uh, and, and, and I certainly agree with that. And uh, I've actually been uh, presented a number of petitions in the House Assembly uh, since this session started. Uh, on behalf of uh, people on the West Coast and throughout the province who have concerns uh, about the project and, and, you know, concerns about the fact that there was a 4,000-page-plus document out there, very technical in nature, and, uh, you know, allowing sufficient time for people to be able to absorb that information if they are able or at least find some uh, expertise uh, that, that could help them do so. And then make some further comments uh, before we proceeded. So that's going to uh, obviously that's going to happen. That's a good thing. Um, but you know, I still do have some concerns, and and this is coming from someone who, as we all know, and I've you know uh, obviously acknowledged numerous times, uh, voted for Muskrat Falls at the time, based on what I was being told by those who I thought were in the know and knew what they were talking about and so on. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's kind of similar. I know that Muskrat Falls was a public, totally publicly funded. I, I understand the difference there. But it still was a large project like this is, a lot of technical information and so on. And, and it will have lasting impacts, uh, good or bad, uh, if, if, if the project proceeds. And this is just one of several projects now that will be in the hopper uh, that will be similar to this. So... I just think it's important that we make sure, if we're going to allow these things, that they are done right and that everybody understands the pros and the cons and the impacts uh, of the project uh, before it proceeds. I do understand that there's an obvious economic benefit uh, to the project, certainly uh, perhaps a a bigger impact uh, in terms of the construction and so on, Uh, maybe a little lesser after, well, a lot lesser after the construction is done, but would still be uh, hopefully a positive economic impact still not sure exactly what it means in terms of revenues coming into the province but uh, but i am concerned about things like the electrical grid and i think i heard you mention it and it's been something i've raised in the house assembly as well and uh, you know i do understand that um, miss williams was on and said you know if they have to hook into the electrical grid well they would have to pay for the hookup or whatever but it's, it's fine to say just that but I have concerns about, well, 
what about if this project combined with other projects all come online all of a sudden uh, we we say okay now we need to generate more power or we need to upgrade our systems and our lines and whatever the case might be who's going to pay for all this well she did and say she that their understanding of us yeah she did say that uh, there's no big upgrade in transmission required all infrastructure required by world energy GH2 to tap into our grid is on their dime that's been established by Minister Parsons and I followed up with Jennifer Williams they both told me the same thing I can only go with what I've been told insofar as answers to the questions but I've asked those I, I think we're a little bit hung up on diesel generation you know the recommendation from hatch was exactly that 150 megawatt diesel generator at Hollywood for backup it wasn't in the report for world energy gh2 this was a straight-up backup issue but if there's going to be upwards of 158 megawatts required at certain times of year from uh, or by world energy we've got to have that understanding before you even worry about environmental assessments because if we can't figure that out they will be putting up wind turbines that might not even you know be able to satisfy their needs at the ammonia plant and the well, pardon me the electrolysis and then the ammonia plant so that's got to be part of it before there's any further discussion, I think. Well, I, I, I agree. And, and I'm also looking at the perspective of, you know, it's not GH2. It's the fact that there are several others um, that were going to be similar to GH2 that I think we're given the go-ahead to proceed to the next stage. I think there's one out in uh, the Marystown area. I think there's one perhaps in Argentia, if I'm not mistaken. And there's one... Bonavista, maybe? I'm not, I'm not sure about Ex- this. Exploits Valley? There's three or four, anyways. There's four. The province put four through to the next stage. Uh, down yep. the Bureau Peninsula, Come By Chance, uh, the Exploits Valley Group, the hub would be in Botwood, and World Energy GH2. Argentia is pattern energy. They weren't given the go-through, but, of course, their first phase does not use crown land, so there's no need for any approvals yet based on that, but they're proceeding as well. So, in summary, there's five that are currently in play. There you go. So that's five that's currently in place. So if all that comes to fruition, then I, I got to believe that's going to have an impact on the grid. Not beyond simply hooking up to the grid and the cost associated to it. I, I think it may have a, an impact potentially on the grid itself and perhaps upgrades or additional um, uh, generation that may be required. And that's where, that's where we need, in my opinion, uh, a company like Liberty, who was doing good work for uh, the PUB, and unfortunately they're, they've stepped away. But that's where it would be nice to have perhaps an independent entity like that to, to do that analysis and, 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 and provide us with some assurances that this is all going to work and that ratepayers are not going to be on the hook. Sure. Now, and is Liberty gone? Is Liberty gone? Thing? I thought they were going to stay on until there was another company brought on stream. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not certain. I'm not certain. I, I know that I saw in the media that they were, they were going to conclude their their contract. That's so, true. Yeah, yeah, that I know. Uh, whether they're actually gone or, you know, they'll be gone soon. I'm not sure. But the point is, I thought they were doing good work. It gave some assurances that there was some, you know, independent oversight by experts in the field, and I think it would be good to have that for these projects and. Similarly for any other environmental concerns, because even if we give 50 days for people to comment um, on this additional information when it comes in, that'll be that'll be more information on top of the already 4,000-page technical document that, quite frankly, I don't... If you give 50 days, you get six months. I'm not sure, unless you have someone with some expertise that can 
really combed down through this and, and, and given an independent point of view. I'm not sure that the average Joe or Jane is going to be able to do it if you give them two years. Well, and, I did my best, well. and I came up short. Uh, Paul, i got to get to the final break of the morning. Appreciate the time. Anything else very quickly? Uh, no, that was it, Patty. Uh, like I say, if we're going to do it, I'm not, I'm not against development. God knows we need whatever revenues we can get and, and all that kind of stuff to help compensate for the oil shortages that's you know are going to happen oil is, you know obviously you can see what's happening with exploration we need to find new industries and so on not against that not against the job certainly uh, but uh, if we're going to do it um i just want to make sure that that we do it right with all the information so we don't make a mistake and shake our heads uh, 10 years from now appreciate the time paul thank you Thank you, Patty. All the very best. You too. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Paul Lane, independent member, Mount Pearl Southlands. Final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Sylvia, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. How are you? Top shelf this morning. How you doing? I'm getting ready to go up to move, help move some ladies from there. She's got an apartment that we're going to move her into out of Tent City. So we're down to about two people, three, three to be exact. Yeah. Now, some have moved from Confederation Building to the Colonial Building area. So I don't know what the total tally is. You know, and uh, some of the stories. Five went. Okay, go ahead. Five went down from uh, the hill. Okay. So, yeah. So it's just a matter now, David in the car and Joey in the tent. So... One tent left. I can't believe it. 30 days. <laughs> Been rough going, you know. Anyway, I thought I'd just call and tell you that. As a volunteer and speaking for the other six volunteers, we're not giving up on the people that have found shelter, hotels, motels, houses. We will be, they're like an extended family to us now. So we're going to take care of them, do whatever we can do for them, and follow it through till they get their houses somewhere permanent to live. And I'm sure they appreciate the effort. And so they located an apartment just like uh, a basement apartment in someone's home. Is that what they found? No, they're in shelters, shelter homes. Oh, okay. You know, not the best. One one of our good friends that we've met, um, he said he can still, he puts earplugs in. So he can't hear the rats crawling inside the walls, you know? Yeah. So it's still pretty disgusting. But that's our government, isn't it? Well, I mean, uh, on the Mercy Shelter issue, it's pretty remarkable. Well, we're always going to need them for a variety of reasons. Hopefully not to utilize them the way we currently do with the numbers of people that require that type of transition housing. But there's not even minimum standards. That's what I think nope. makes me more angry than just about any other moving part here regarding shelters. We don't have a minimum standards for cleanliness, inspections, oversight, monitoring, enforcement, all of the things that go with having a safe reasonable place for people who are in dire need so they're working on it and hopefully that work is concluded sooner than later well this my thing is i know i was homeless at one time a long time ago but if i had to walk in and see what one well actually there's five of them that left the hill that day and went to the one house it was disgusting we have the pictures, we have the videos. 
we have the response, you know, like, get off my property, I'm calling the RNC. And, but that's not acceptable. You know, you wouldn't put a dog down there, really. And I hate to say a dog because we had three dogs up at Ten City, and they were so well taken care of. People brought clothes and everything for the dogs to put on, you know. And, and these dogs slept in the tents with, with their owners. And, oh, it's downright disgusting. It really is. I've never been so heartbroken over these people that have touched me in my heart. You know. Well, as I said, I'm sure they appreciate the kindness and the efforts you and the other volunteers are putting in. I appreciate the update this morning, Sylvia. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Good luck. Blessings. Take good care of yourself. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing. What? And again, this is not new. And once again, in the fall fiscal update, we can talk about borrowing and net debt and unemployment rate and inflation and all the rest. It's all important. But to know that we are thinking we need to build 10,000 units per year for the next six years, and in 2023, housing starts are going to look like 829. 30, almost a 35% drop from 1379 last year. A long way from even 1379 to 10,000. Anyway, good show today. Big thanks. So let's check in one final time on the Twitter box. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. You know what to do. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning. Right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.